Tonight on This is Vanatap, Mama Leone left a note on the door. She said, Sonny, move out to the country. Choosing to laugh with sinners and taking a pass on crying with saints. Trading your Chevy for a Cadillac, clack, 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 clack. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. And we're going to tell that story from a very hot Austin, Texas. Oh, Lord. What temperature did we reach today? 103. 103? Yeah. You know? Do you know how I knew it was 103? How? Because I check it and see. <laughs> wow. You know, I'm glad I just made up that temperature because it was worth the, worth the giggle. Well, anyway. Well, something you need to know about Texas, ladies and gentlemen, is when it gets hot, the Texans tough it out. Mm-hmm. And then there are those that, oh, I need to go somewhere cooler. <laughs> JM, how are you tonight? I'm fine. It's uh, kind of warm here. I got up to uh, 81. In, Are you in Colorado? Colorado? I'm in Colorado still. Yes, I am. Yeah, you're up there with all the high T or the low T Texans who uh, needed to escape <laughs> the heat. Yeah. Well, I hope y'all are having fun. I hope y'all got plenty of Barlinson James and uh, Zima. <laughs> I, I love the fact that the <laughs> say the wine cooler. I'm actually happy. I, I, I could go for a peach Bartles and James right now, actually. Yeah, but you're a vegetarian, so that's natural <laughs> for you. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're a little bit off track. Um, I would like to announce that tonight we're going to be talking about Billy Joel's 1977 release, The Stranger. And I will not be making <laughs> jokes about the name of the album tonight. Um, <laughs> T, did you pick this album? I uh, know. That means... That it was JM, because I didn't pick it, and yeah. I don't remember anybody recommending it. No. <laughs> JM, Jonathan Rolt. So you were telling us earlier you picked this album because there's some chick you like? <laughs> <laughs> Played in a band with a, a fantastic piano player who just showed me some of the stuff that Billy Joel did. And he's, and he's a trained pianist, and he said, chord changes and things that Billy Joel does just make no sense. And one of the songs he was showing me was was on this album. So there's that. We'll get to that when we get to the to the album. The other thing is a friend of mine recently was 
you know, one of her favorite songs in the world is Innocent Man by Billy Joel. I had checked out Billy Joel a long time, time ago before that, that album came out. But there's a couple of songs on there that I've really... Man, that, this are, friend of yours, that was one of her favorite songs? Yeah, it's one of her favorite songs. And this um, was an attractive person? <laughs> She's an attractive person. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think, um, Tony, I'm starting to understand why we're talking about Billy yeah. Joel tonight. Yeah, I get mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Okay, and the third thing is my uh, my son has really gotten into this album. And he, I was in my car one day about a couple of years ago, and uh, my son just started playing The Stranger on uh, through my Bluetooth. And I said, well, Eli, I didn't know you were into this album. He goes, oh, yeah, Dad, it's great. And he was playing me like Vienna Waits for You and um, just, just Only Vienna. the Good Die Young. Yeah, or Vienna, yeah. Um, and I, you know, one of the reasons why he's, he, my son's a drummer and he said that he really likes Liberty DeVito, the drummer it, for, um, that's I, easy to that, understand. That, that is easy to understand. He's a good, very good drummer. And he brings a lot yeah, of you know, energy to the your, your kid, your kid is the same age as my oldest daughter. And I was right. made aware that this album, I don't know which song, but one of the songs on this album is uh, used in the TikTok and has been. And so, oh, really? yeah, so the younger generation got hip to it because of that. They probably, what, what happens no is they hear a song over and over again on TikTok stuff, and then they go see, at least with my kids, they go seek the album out if they like it, and that's yeah. what's happened. Both yeah. my kids have listened to this album incessantly without my knowledge, because I had never heard them listening to it over the last year and a half. Wow. Yeah, yeah. No about the same time that my son got into it. Yeah, he's, he's huge into it. Well, it's nice to know that... It's something hip is going on out there. Maybe all these hip young kids will listen to our show now. Maybe. Yeah. Now that we're doing <laughs> well, the stranger. So <laughs> that's kind of three the old parts. Yeah. So that's 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 a little bit of the background of how I got back into this album. But let's talk about this album specifically. First of all, the songwriting is really, really good. I mean, it's not earth shattering. It's it's not something that you know just hits me the way like a Tom Waits album does or Tom Waits lyrics do, but, um, the, you know, they're sort of story songs, but the structures of them are really, really interesting. The, the chord structures, the way that Billy Joel sings them, it's just, it's the, the songs themselves are just fascinating to listen to. Um, and second of all, we were just talking about it. The, the playing is superb on this album. I mean, you can't, there, there is just, it is. It's a tight band. Flawless. It's a pretty it's tight. A very, band. very tight band. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it and it goes it goes to his um, desire to have them record with him. I think he knew exactly mm -hmm. what he was talking about. Um, yeah. I, it's. I just want to say one other thing about what my older daughter said about Billy Joel. It was kind of interesting. We were talking about him because I'm doing this. I was doing research. I was listening to the album, and uh, she brought up Elton John, which is easy to do. A lot of people do when they talk sure. about Billy Joel. Yeah. Went on and, tour together, and and she said, uh, in her opinion, and she loves Elton John. She goes, I think Billy Joel writes better lyrics. And I said, Well, Elton John doesn't write the lyrics, but I, I get what you're saying. Um, <laughs> yeah. At least she um, feels an attachment to him more than she does to Bernie Taupin's lyrics. Anyway, yeah, they're a little, they're not as uh, they're much uh, more down to earth. Impression, yeah, they're not as impressionistic as. You know, he's not talking about people blasting off into space and missing their wives and kids and. That. Which about I think is going to be very poignant before too long. <laughs> and the final thing I, I want to say about it is, is the arrangements on this album are just 
fascinating to me. There's just so many different styles musically. Um, I mean, you've got like Dixieland jazz sort of sounding stuff coming in. You've got this nice little ballad. You've got these, you know, we'll get to it later, but you've got these almost atmospheric kind of background sounds going on. 10cc. Um, 10cc sounding stuff, yeah. Um, uh, Eric Clapton. <laughs> and that has to do, I think a lot of that has to do with this guy named Phil Ramone, who is the producer on this. And he was, actually, which Ramone was he? That's um, Paul McCartney. He was staying in a hotel. <laughs> that's right. Was he? Uh, yeah. That's what now, the band. Gotta, that's we, what the band's named after, right, Phil? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we need. I mean, Phil. If everybody go out and, and look up Phil Ramone on Wikipedia, he is a fascinating. Oh yeah, baby. <laughs> Since we're oh, talking we about the Ramones and Paul McCartney <laughs> and Eric Clapton and everybody else, let's go ahead and go to connections, ladies and gentlemen. This is when we try to connect this album to albums we've already talked about before. It is a connection. T? Yeah. Would you happen to have any connections? <laughs> Mine are so tenuous, but I'm going to throw this one out because I don't, I don't think either one of you guys got it. Um the uh the place and it's not this album but it's a connection to billy joel so um oh you're going to connect billy joel to billy joel no i'm going to connect oh, billy joel that's... to another podcast but not this particular oh, album oh, we're talking okay. about yeah don't be such a smart aleck um the turnstiles was originally recorded or the initially recorded at caribou ranch in colorado um yep. and not too, 40 miles away from me right now and an album that we it's, talked about. It's about JM. Yes. <laughs> an album that we talked about several episodes ago. One of my favorite, and I think a, a surprise to the other two guys, was Wish You Were Here by Badfinger. was also recorded at Caribou Ranch in Colorado. Hmm. So that's... Wasn't, yeah. um, wasn't that Billy Joel album? I mean, uh, Elton John album we did recorded? At- Tumbleweed Connection? I no, but don't, don't think he so. did record at Caribou. Yeah, later. and I think that's why... That's he, what, in fact, he named the album Caribou. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the name of the guy who started that studio? Jim uh, Greco? Oh, I, 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 Greasy, I don't know how to say his last name. I'm horrible at that. Anyway. There's that's, a lot of great albums. That's a... Uh, that's, I think Tom Petty recorded there at one point, too. Yeah, uh, that's right. my tenuous connection that I have. All right, uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, would you like to use your Colorado powers to connect us? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll do one that's uh, kind of out there. This album was supposed to have been produced by George Martin. That is true. Who we, who we talked about on the um, Beatles podcast, of course. But he, uh, Billy Joel turned him down. Can you imagine turning down well, your... your you're under the gun with Columbia Records, and George Martin wants to produce your album, and Billy Joel says no. Well, uh, we can't. You can't. You got to say why he turned him down. He turned him down because Billy Joel wanted to use his touring band that he had just become so uh, comfortable with, and, and he thought that that would make it. And George Martin said he wanted to use studio missions. We also, I think, to put it band. to put it in context as well. Not no knock on George Martin, but we're talking about 1977 George Martin, not 1960s yeah. George Martin. That's so true. just true. throwing this that out a, there. This is yeah. This is America. He's producing America. He's involved in the remake of Sgt. Pepper's Heart, Lord and the Hearts Club Band. And it's no knock. It's no knock on him, but he's. He's not as immediate as an impact as somebody like um, right. 
Yeah. And uh, maybe everything he's got has been poured out already yeah. and everybody's copied it. Yeah. I think Billy yeah. Joel made yeah. the right decision. I do too. He says he, this is a hot band yeah. and nothing nothing he did before this. Yeah, a lot of stuff he did before this there wasn't a band or much of right. one. And th- these guys this is a great band. It's and a he, really good he band. He was right. And whoever recognize that well gets the prize but but you you can't you can't dismiss and i know we're kind of going on a little tangent you can't dismiss phil ramon's impact because this band was also on turnstiles and billy joel produced that album because what happened was when they recorded it for caribou just to throw that out there since i did talk about it he hated the way it sounded so he moved he had everyone go up to new york and he re-recorded the whole thing and produced it himself and he didn't get what this what no. the stranger sounds like and with Full turn, Maroon behind them. Turnstile is yeah. not a bad. No, album it's not. But no, it's good this album. one, this one, they just pulled the belt tighter, and everything's in there, and it's a oh, much the, tighter. Every, it's it's an aerodynamic yeah. album compared to Turnstile. Yeah, yeah. Even George Martin later said, "Yeah, that was a way to go." I wish so. that I was that kind of guy that did stuff like that. <laughs> well, and and it had to have been tough because Billy Joel is a. He's a big Beatles guy, like big, big Beatles yeah. guy. And I that's the other reason he was smart to stay away from Martin, because in my opinion, he already sounds too much like McCartney on yeah. some of these things. He didn't need. Yeah. He didn't need to yeah. sound any more like. Him. Yeah, I get that. Right. Right. Doug, um, Doug do you have any connections? Uh, well, we talked about Linda Ronstadt. You and I did before we started, yeah. though. We didn't and talk. Do you that's, want to say what that connection horrible, is? That's a horrible connection. It's so tenuous. But she heard well, it changing and said she liked it. I don't. I don't think it's tenuous because that song wouldn't. I mean, it's one of the reasons the song's on the album. album. Well, I think also yeah. Phil Ramone said the album would have been a little yeah. might short had it not been on there. But I think he uh, having her say it's a great song convinced. A because he in an interview I saw he's like as as Linda Ronstadt said she liked it and yeah. she wasn't too bad on the eyes. So. Well. <laughs> And I think, I think also. she could get yeah. me to put um, yeah. Rainbow Connection on my album if she said don't, so. Don't she's knock the Rainbow doll. Connection. That's a great song. <laughs> anyway. I guess the last connection I want to make is Phil Ramone himself. He worked very closely with Paul Simon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, did, he was uh, kind of still crazy after all these years. Mm-hmm. Still crazy after all these years. Yeah. And uh, that was a, I mean, Billy Joel really liked that album. And, and there's some um, similarities. Yeah. Um, oh, very. Yeah. I've got one more really tenuous connection. <laughs> I mean, this one is like stretching. You know, Billy Joel, after this album came out, was on Saturday Night Live. And the producers yeah. did not want him to play only the Good Die Young. We'll get to the reasons why, but there was a controversy around it. And he did it anyway. And an artist yeah. we talked about earlier, Elvis Costello, yep. also yeah. messed with with uh, Saturday Night Live as well. Lord Although Michaels, yeah. he was banned, Elvis Costello was banned. I don't think Billy Joel was ever banned from playing on this. I wonder why they said not that. It's not that rebellious for the seventies. Radio, radio, or this song? This Only song. the good. I think it was because of controversy yeah. around it. They, they well, did. I got. I have to go into that now. Okay, um, there are three artists I saw on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And their performance turned me into their fan. Okay. Ricky Lee Jones, uh-huh. Pam Morrison, uh-huh. and mm-hmm. Billy Joel. Really? Yeah. God, that is so weird. I had the exact same, <laughs> the exact same reaction I had. Ricky I, Lee I Jones like, got up there in yeah. Chucky and Love, and yeah. I was knocked out. I'm not doing them in order. Van Morrison, I guess Van Morrison's probably first. When Van Morrison got up there and did Wavelength, I yeah. I said I have I'll to never have this. Forget that I have thing. to have this. 
I, it just blew me away. It was amazing, yeah. and I had to have it right away. And then Billy Joel doing Only the Good Die Young. He was amazing. I've never seen that kind of energy I, before. I, I would really like to post that on the website, but good luck. SNL's yeah, very it's, it's litigious yeah, about very their, their videos. Yeah. So if I can get around so, yeah. it. So I remember, well, Doug, if you're, it's a if you're uh, with the legal department at S, S, what is it? SNL. 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 Uh, please, please uh, give us permission. So, yeah, Doug, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because, and Tony, you mentioned that too. I actually, for research on this podcast, I very much remember that uh, episode of, of Saturday Night Live and really wanting to get that, to download that. All they have is just the audio and just stills of the, the yeah. performance. It yeah. was such um, one thing that has yeah. to be said about Billy Joel is I, I saw him on the what is it the 52nd Street, I saw him on that tour, and yeah. the guy is an the incredible performer. showman. Yeah, he is amazing yeah. and hmm. maybe the most energetic person I've ever seen on the stage. Well, and I think, he's the most hyperactive. Have you ever seen him interviewed? He's hyperactive as hell. Well, yeah, and then you know he. We'll probably talk about this later, but he was a boxer. Yep. So I, I mm-hmm. would imagine, compared to most of the people we listen to, he was in a higher state of uh, damn good boxer too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just his vanity. Um, it's it's a shame he's such a handsome man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a thing that's, that's he quit because he didn't want to get punched in the nose. Well, anymore. he got put. Yeah, he got punched <laughs> in the nose, and it was ruining his looks. But uh, so you, yeah, I mean, let's, so that, that kind of brings he's in yeah. good shape because you can't you can't stand the ring for. 15 rounds if you're not in tip what do you want shape. yeah he, he won, won 22, 22 rounds 22 yeah. or 24 rounds 22 get uh yeah. fights yeah and or 22 yeah. fight or eyes of the 24 so that the he ones fought he in. lost were two by uh yeah. two by knockout and the rest were by uh decision but so apparently a very yeah. good fighter so we're, we're getting into a little bit of the history here and i'm recently heard an interview with billy joel on uh the rolling stone podcast uh and they were supposedly people have come up to him and asked if they could do a biography of him. And there's even been talk of doing a, a biopic of, of Billy Joel and Billy Joel on the, in the interview was just like, what is there to talk about? I'm not that well, interesting a guy, but is maybe not like his, his personal life. You know, he's been married four times, I guess, but I, he said, there's no drug overdoses. There's no, uh, you know, I, I haven't been arrested. I uh, you dated a no, supermodel. A lot date, of us date, find that dated a supermodel, attempted suicide. Let me tell you something. This, I knew, I found out so much about this guy doing research for this podcast. I find him yeah. immensely interesting. I mean, well, really, oh, really interesting. I had the same impact because I've always thought of him as kind of a lightweight. And that line, yeah. the best way to describe it is, you might have heard I run with a dangerous crowd. I felt like saying, oh, shut up. Yeah. You know, you're a little piano boy going to. Nope. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> nope. I was so wrong. And, and, and the yeah. and and just musically, some of the stuff that he did as, as a young kid is just fascinating. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. It, yeah. I, but he didn't graduate high school because he missed an exam because he was playing in a piano bar the night before the exam, so he didn't graduate high school. Well, and, but he was a good student. Yeah. But he did go back and get his degree. Yeah, yeah. Well, she, what what year was that? It's like 90, it was like in the nineties. In the nineties, yeah. he goes back and writes yeah. an essay and gets yeah. his degree. Yeah. I love that. It's his degree. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm a gazillionaire, but I need to come back and get my <laughs> degree from Hicksville. 
What about um, the history, T? Do we have any history on this guy? Yeah. There he yeah. was. This is not a Texan. No, no. He was... Has anyone figured out why we're uh, experts? I not guess because I saw him in uh, the <laughs> 80s. I'm ne- yeah, I've never seen I, um, Yeah, I, I don't know why we're experts, but I do want to talk a little bit about his family before he yeah. came around, because it's yeah, fascinating. His it's Ma- yeah, fascinating so his, his father and his grandparents, his paternal grandparents, uh, escaped Nazi Germany. Um, it, a lot of his other family weren't so lucky, but he, the, the three of them escaped Nazi Germany. His grandfather was evidently a... Um, was a pretty decent businessman. He had his business yeah. taken away from him by a by a Nazi party member, um, and um, and their, their father's name was uh, was uh, Helmet Helmet Joel, yeah. and his grandparents were Carl and Meta. Um, they and they get, what they do is they escape to Switzerland, and then they make their way to Cuba, and then they eventually make their way to New York. And uh, Joel's maternal grandparents left the Ukraine for the UK in the early 20th century because of anti-Semitism in the U- in, in the Ukraine. And then they uh, ended up emigrating from the UK to the United States. Um, yeah. He is uh, eventually, well, <laughs> his parents meet, you know, his parents met. Yeah. City college, New York at some Rogers and Hammerstein Pro- a production of pirates, of, of, of pirates of Penzance yeah. in yeah, 1942. Was singing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> Anyway, they uh, they they get married, and he's born in in May of 1949 in the Bronx. They don't live in the Bronx very long. They end up moving to Hicksville, which is on Long Island, the next year, and that's where he grew up. And he grew up in a house full of music. His dad was a pretty darn good piano player, by all accounts. According to him, he said he was his yeah. piano hero. He he would come home from a hard day of working at General General Electric, and he would uh, take Chopin and pieces and work through them just laboriously, trying to figure out what he you know how to play them. Um, the unfortunate thing about his father was uh, he was had a very very dark side, and um, and his and not because, a very communicative person. No, he wasn't, and uh, and he and he had a, and because of that, Billy Joel had a strained relationship with him. Um, they he wasn't around a whole lot. He says in an interview, he says that he doesn't remember his dad being around. And at the t- this is before they ended up getting divorced when he was eight. But before that, he wasn't even around much. And when he was around, there was always kind of a a heaviness to him being there. Um, yeah. It's interesting because his dad moved back to Europe, which Joel always found kind of fascinating. In fact, he moved to Austria. He's like, why would he move back to a place that he had to escape because the people hated yeah. his guts? But anyway, he, um, yeah. his dad moves Went back to, Indiana, to yeah. yeah, to, and, and then, um, they end up, uh, getting in touch later when Billy Joel's in his early twenties, he's touring over in Europe. We'll talk about that because it has to do with the song Vienna, but it's a pretty interesting yeah. story. Yeah. So he takes piano. I think what four is that when he well, went? Yeah, the thing about his dad that's in, that's important is he said he didn't like America. Yeah, he said that yeah. we were materialistic and mm. um, uneducated. Uneducated. That's interesting. Yeah. The materialistic thing that must have had an impact on his son, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> based on some of the songs tonight. <laughs> but uh, yeah. anyway, uh, he's four years old, I think, when he starts taking when his mom convinces him to start taking piano lessons. That's right. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we, we talk about this a lot in terms of what inspired him to be much kind of a bigger musician is he ends up seeing a certain band on a certain program when he's young and it blows the top of his head off. He sees the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Um, 
as you mentioned, Doug, he in the while well, he was a teenager, and I'm just getting this out because we'll start talking about his music career in a minute. But um, he's a boxer and uh, and a pretty good one. He was on the amateur Golden Glove Glove circuit, um, and we talked about that briefly. So anyway, he and he, he was taking piano lessons from someone who played piano for the ballet. Oh, I did not know and that. He yeah, would he got, would be yeah. returning from the piano lessons, uh, and now the boys would go. Ooh, did you have fun at your at that's your why ballet? Ba- that's why Where's he boxed. your tutu yeah. and all that? Was, so he was inspired to learn how to punch people in the nose. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> Which is a good thing for all you young men out there. He um piano lessons and learn how to punch somebody. In 1963, he starts his first band, The Echoes, and this is going to be a without um, the Bunnymen. Yes, this is before the Bunnymen. The Bunnymen, but this is going to be a um a he's he has a, a penchant for having bands with pretty cool names the echoes i think is a great name um he's 14 years old he starts it with his buddy howie blauvelt on bass and that guy you know what that guy ended up doing later in the 70s uh, what <laughs> he, he found greater fame with the band ram jam Whoa, that baby. <laughs> and, and their top 20 hit Black Betty. Anyway, um, yeah. So that's that was Billy well, Joel's who childhood Black friend. Betty first? I don't know. It's someone like Lead uh, Belly. Lead Belly, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. There you go. It was um, different. <laughs> anyway, the Echoes are a four piece. It wasn't piece. a roller, roller skating number. Yeah, there you go. Um, they're a four piece and they play covers of the bands that were popular at the time. So they play the Stones, the Kinks, the Zombies, and of course the Beatles. And uh, Joel started out as a singer and the pianist, but then he switched to a Vox organ. <laughs> and uh, the very first song he ever wrote was with that band when he was 14 years old. He wrote a song called My Journey's End. So, um, before you think that's a recording of him with the Echoes, it is not. It's a recording with one of his later bands, The Hassles. Um, but, um, I'm sorry, The Lost Souls. Uh, but and he, he, he said later that he said he was a better organist than a piano player. Yeah. yeah which I don't understand because I hardly ever hear him on the organ. Yeah. Well, we'll, Even on we'll, this album. we'll get, we'll get to a, we'll get to a band that he was in that there's lots of organ on. <laughs> but, um, anyway, uh, he, there's a pattern here because in talking about this song, he's very self-deprecating. He disparages himself a lot. At case in point, when you said he's a better organ player than than a pianist, he does that a lot. And in that song, he just describes it as a bad, it is a bad Beatles song is essentially what he called it. Um, here's an interesting thing. Around that same time, according to him, he he's 15 and the producer Shadow Morton, who was recording the Shangri-Las in Leventown basement in a Leventown basement studio, asks him to play on the song Leader of the Pack. And he says he was ne- well, not he said he was never paid because he wasn't a union member, but he's not sure if he, if any of his takes are on the like he doesn't know wow. if but he did in fact play on those sessions he just didn't know if it Oh made yeah, it he played a, he he knows he played on the demos but he doesn't yeah. know if his if, yeah if, if it ever made it over that's right. Right. Yeah. So his next band is the Lost Souls. Um the Echoes essentially became the Lost Souls. They're actually in 1965 they're signed to Mercury and Mercury renames them the Commandos, another great name. 
Um, because why, guys? What's the history of bands in the 60s? They were, were in underwear? No. Oh, what? <laughs> There's another band called The Lost Souls. Oh. <laughs> so you got to change your name to the new originals. <laughs> anyway, not to get into this final tap stuff. But um, they cut, they're the ones that cut the track Journey's End. It wasn't um, it was never released by Mercury, but he um, it ended up on a on a uh, compilation later on. That's why we have a copy of it. The band also went by the fantastic name the Emerald Lords. I mean, just these are just great names. So um, in '67, uh, a guy by the name of John Small asked Joel to join his band, which was a band called the Hassles, to replace their fired organist Harry Weber. Um, he said, I'll do it on two conditions. One, he wanted to bring his Vox because um, Weber used a Hammond B3 and Billy Joel wanted to bring a Vox. And he wanted his his childhood friend, Howie Blauvelt, to be uh, the basis for the band. Um, and so that worked out. They agreed. Because of uh, the Young Rascals, the record companies, the success of the Young Rascals, record labels were beating down the doors uh, around Long Island looking for the next big band. And so they signed. Uh, um, that, put, that puts us back with uh, Little Steve. It does. Yeah. The uh, Vanilla Fudge was signed, <laughs> and then uh, wow. the U- United Artists ends up signing the Hassles. They release an album May of six, or I'm sorry, they record as an album in May of '67 that goes unreleased until 1992. But their first single, which was released in August of '67, was called "You've Got Me Humming." Play a little bit of that. I dig that actually a lot. I like that. Yeah, little, I like that uh, a lot. Spencer Davis band. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. it's 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 funny you mentioned that because um, they well so just real quick that got enough airplay that they were on and, they, and enough national ex- exposure and local exposure that they hit that song hit number one hundred and twelve on the Billboard charts, which is kind of a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. Their debut album was released in sixty seven. It's got covers and originals on it. The covers are by Sam and Dave, Herp Albert. I'm Herb Albert, Peggy Lee, and since you mentioned Spencer Davis, Traffic. They cover Colored Rain off the Mr. Fantasy album. <laughs> um, and they released another single in 68. Neither the album or the single did much. The third single is released in August in 68. And uh, and then the last Hassles um, album, Hour of the Wolf, was released in January of 1969. All of the songs on that album were either written or co-written by Billy Joel. It also did nothing. So... Here comes my favorite part of his early musical history. <laughs> and Doug's laughing because he knows what it is. He, the drummer from the Hassles, a guy by the name of John Small and uh, Billy Joel break off and they form a two-piece band, uh, organ and drums, in, uh, called Attila in 1969. Billy Joel played the bass lines on the keyboard, uh, much like one of this podcast's favorite artists, The Doors. That's said with tongue firmly planted in cheek. And he also Thank sang. Um, so what did what did uh, what did Attila sound like? Shall we play a little bit of it, boys? I bet it's real let's sweet. Do it's, let's, yes. All right. This is a song called change. Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, it's my heart away. Wonder Woman, 
I just want to keep playing that. <laughs> that sounds like almost like a Deep Purple ripoff. Well, yeah, it, 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 it makes sense because Deep Purple had that real heavy keyboard yeah, that sound. Heavy organ. Yeah. Um, they're essentially in a heavy metal band, well, these guys. I, I, I just, yeah. uh, they're a very famous band for one thing. What, the album cover? No. Oh. It's the first time that a keyboardist stole a girl away from a drummer. <laughs> yeah, we were going to get to that, but you're right. Um, I thought you were going to talk about their lovely album cover where they're dressed like Huns. Are they being funny or are they being serious? No, I think it was being serious. <laughs> that makes it more funny. They're, they're, dressed, they're dressed like Huns and they're in a meat locker surrounded by big sides of beef hanging on meat hooks. Um, oh my god! So what's interesting? If, if, if Spinal Tap couldn't come up with something better they couldn't. than that. <laughs> what's interesting about about this band is that um, so they don't have a guitarist. So what Billy Joel does is he runs his organ through a Marshall stack and loads it down with distortion, distortion, so it'll sound like a Gibson Les Paul. And I listened That's to this. That's what we were listening to. Yeah. Wow. And I listened to this album. And I was wondering, this sounds like a guitar player it, it that's does. in charge of the album. It does. It is. Yeah. And it's Billy Joel. And he's also playing, like I mentioned, the bass, bass lines, probably on pedals, I would imagine. But who knows? Yeah, imagine. I can't um, believe that's not done more. Yeah. Because that sounded like no, it some sounds, thrasher. It sounds really cool. He says that um, the band got roughly a dozen gigs, but they couldn't get anybody to stay in the room. Not because they sucked, <laughs> but because they were so loud. Like they were super, super loud. People, they drove people out of the bars. But <laughs> who was it that the the who said they were just irresponsible? They were so loud. And <laughs> who was that? <laughs> it wasn't very long ago. I guess it was T Rex. <laughs> it was. It, yeah, it was. It was Mark Boland's uh, band. He was in. Uh, I forget the name of it, but um, John John something or yeah, other. The one um, before T. Any, anyway, they they were popular enough that they got signed by Epic to a fifty thousand dollar advance. They put out that album in nineteen seventy, self titled Attila, and uh, and Billy Joel likes to look back on it and just call it psychedelic BS. But I I, <laughs> I think it's worth listening to at least once. I actually kind of like some of the songs on it, I'm, but I'm fascinated um, by that organ that sounds like a guitar. I am too. Yeah. yeah. But um, to go to your comment about the keyboardist stealing the drummer. Um, yeah, this all ended in 1970 when Billy Joel ran off with Small's wife, Elizabeth, who would later then become his manager. And, and they Billy were Joel's all wife. three living in the same house. Yeah. If, if, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're stupid, um, <laughs> don't, you don't set up a situation like that. It's just a disaster. Uh huh. Um, anyway, so the album is a flop. Surprise. Relationship with Elizabeth is not working out at that time the way he wanted it to. So Billy Joel's living back at home. He's distraught. He's broke. He's tormented it's by a connection. This is uh, our depressed friend in England. Um, oh, Nick Drake. Nick yeah, Drake. Nick Drake. Nick Drake. It's, it's a lot like that. Yeah. Um, he's also tormented. Oddly enough, he says he was tormented by the affair that he had had. He felt awful about it. Um, and so he decides to take his life, as he puts it. He said, the world didn't need another failed musician. And uh, looking back on it, he said, I took myself way too seriously at this point in my life. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're 19 or 20 years old out there, uh, one of the best thing I can tell you is uh, please start laughing at everything you do because you're ridiculous. <laughs> well, and and what he ends up doing is he opens up his, his this cabinet in his mother's house and he sees two bottles with skulls and crossbones on it. The first one is bleach. And he says... 
It doesn't look like that'd be much fun to drink. And the other one is old English scratch cover, furniture polish. So he takes that one and drinks it. It's aged. It's aged. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't It doesn't kill him. And the odd thing is, is the person who discovers him and takes him to the hospital is the drummer from Attila Small, the guy he'd had an affair with his wife, rushes him to the hospital. At that point, Billy Joel's like, you know what? I got a problem. And he actually commits himself to a mental hospital for three weeks to try to deal with his issues and gets out of it. Well, then eventually his, uh, somebody, this manager finds dresses up in a doctor's coat to bust him out. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought he just, I thought he left, but that's interesting. So, huh? Wouldn't, I wouldn't take that responsibility on myself. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be tough. Um, Anyway, so he just, when he gets out, he decides to change focus. He's not, he doesn't want to be a musician, like a rock and roll star anymore. At this time, singer songwriters are big. And he is, he says, you know what? I don't want to be out front and center anymore. I would like to write songs for other people. So, um, Erwin, Erwin Mauser, who I guess is the guy who dressed up in the coat and broke him out because he was his manager at the right. time he was well, also he got someone else to do well he's his man he was his manager he was manager during the hassles period yeah. and the attila period he says look all the people i've talked to said if you want to be a songwriter you got to get your songs heard you got to make your own recording so based on uh it goes in and he and he records a demo um at the time he was writing he uh, was writing some songs that would end up on cold spring harbor he also wrote songs that ended up on piano man like captain jack and part of the ballad of billy billy kid and a, a portion of scenes from an italian restaurant were written at this time as well so those were kind of sitting around um anyway mazer uh says you need to do something so Based on a couple of songs, he gets Joel in advance from this guy named Michael Lang, who was co-creator, co-founder of the Woodstock Music Festival. Lang has a production deal with uh, uh, Paramount Records, and he gets a demo recorded um, in basically in a conference room at Paramount. And uh, Lang says that Joel wasn't really his cup of tea, but he knew somebody who would be, a guy by the name of Artie Rip. Uh, I guess he had his name changed and had the off cut at cut off at the name of rip off. But we'll get to that in a minute. And in fact, Artie rip was interested. And so based on those demos, um, he gets, um, a record deal with family productions in 1971 and starts working on his first solo album, debut solo album, cold spring Harbor. Which that family productions is going to be uh, kind of the bane of his existence for the next that, 10 years or so. Uh, well, 15, 20 years. 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. And that album is really very, very good. Mm-hmm. I if, agree with if you. I were, if I were a betting man, and ladies and gentlemen, I don't bet because I'm such a moral person. And also because it's kind of like doing math. I would bet. I will listen to that album more than any other Billy Joel album before, between now and the day of my death. I really like that record, I, and I, I love it. Has none of the trappings that bother me about other Billy Joel records. It's I don't think he was ever so honest again. Well, and and the reason why he disparages the album is because of a little mishap in the production, right. post production of it. I guess the mastering, the mastering of the album. I've never heard of this before. Um, well, first of all, he's he doesn't he immediately doesn't like the recording process when he goes in to do that. So he's got issues with that. He wanted simple productions. 
Rip, who I guess already Rip produces, right? You know, there's an issue yeah. there when the guy who owns a record label is also producing, but whatever. Um, and so Billy Joel has a problem with the recording process. He wanted simpler productions. Already Rip wants, you know, uh, more lush orchestrations. This is a theme throughout Billy Joel's career. He hates doing multiple takes of songs. He hates it. And Artie Rip would have him do 15, 20 takes of songs to the point where he just hated the songs by the time they were recorded. Um, but here's what the mastering uh, mishap is. Um, it was mastered at the wrong speed. So Billy Joel's voice sounds too high. It was actually mastered at one half of a semitone higher than it should have been. And Billy Joel's and others describe it as he sounds like a chipmunk. He does sound like a chipmunk. So uh, we're going to give you a little sample of it real quick. So we're going to play a song that was the how it should have sounded, which was She's Got Away. She's got a way of talking. I don't know why it is, but it lifts me up when we are walking anywhere. Okay, so that's She's Got Away, as it should have sounded. Here is the mastered original version of that song off of the original pressing of Cold Spring Harbor. So you can see why he was upset about You can see that. why he threw that album against the wall when he first well, heard it. Yeah, he was in a room full of his friends, and they're all giving him crap about it. Like, what? You sound like a chipmunk. And the and the issue why it wasn't fixed was they ran out of money. Artie Rip said, I didn't have, I didn't have money to fix that's, it. That's just... I don't, I don't understand how you press a bunch of records when you know it's all Like 5,000 copies of it, I, I think, I were pressed. I get it. Um, but it's a it's a really a good album. It's not well reviewed. No, and I don't understand that. I agree I, with you. I think it's way better than people say it I, is. If well, anybody gives that less it. than four stars, I I would yeah. tell them they're full of crap. Well, and he he obviously he likes it because he's re-recorded those songs in, in various well they become hits on especially on the live yeah. album he did. I, I think I yeah. think the issue with him and with people who who want to support him is that album is is always going to be tied to Artie Rip. And I won't, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I'm going to talk about the deal he signed with, with Family Productions. So he signed a 10-record contract that essentially stripped Billy Joel of all of his rights to the original tapes and to the publishing rights of all current and future songs. And, and as Billy Joel says, he goes, I signed a lot of stupid papers. I wasn't paying attention. I mean, he, he admits that he should have read it, but at the same time, I mean, what kind of contract is this, you know? Yeah. And, and this guy, this guy is, uh, a, I mean, Bill, this is pretty amazing. Billy Joel in, in later interviews has said he gives credit to Artie Rip for giving him a chance. Nobody else would give him a chance at the time. So he gives him, he gives him credit for that. But at the same time, this guy is routinely looking for ways to make money off of Billy Joel's back. Um, his son is going back to something you said earlier, JM, his son is trying to make a biopic that Billy Joel refuses to let his his music be part of. And it's everything leading up to the signing with Columbia. 
And the reason yeah. why the guy can make it is it's essentially um, the story of one of the guys who was in the hassles that he was with. And so tangentially, he's going to include Billy Joel's life story and make it seemingly about him. I mean, these guys are they're just really disreputable people. But as we mentioned, he, he, he lost his publishing rights. So when he eventually signs with Columbia, they get him his publishing rights back. I mean, uh, they get him his, a new con- contract and some other stuff. What what ended up happening was Artie Rip got, I think, um, a percentage of the songs up until 1986. It was 25%. Yeah. Up until yeah. 1986 for doing nothing yeah. other than ripping the guy off early on. You know? So, Artie, we hope you're wrote. listening. Yeah. <laughs> we think yeah. you're a doo-doo head. <laughs> So anyway, um, but I, I agree with you. I agree with you, Doug. I think um, I think this album's really good. Um, but the, the interesting thing that Billy Joel decides to do to try to get out of the contract is he heads to California with his with Elizabeth and their I think their kid, his kid, uh, her kid, and uh, he says, "I'm just going to wait this out. I'm going to go into hiding. I'm not going to record anything. I'm not going to tour." And so he needs work and he ends up working in this place called the executive room in Los Angeles under the name of Bill Martin. And oh, he's yeah. essentially a piano. He's the he's piano, piano man. man. And that's, that's, that song is based on that experience. So, and he got, he said, I got to get something out of this experience. Yeah. And he got a great song. He out got of a it. great song out of it. But the other thing that happens is Columbia gets interested in him because they hear a live radio performance of Captain Jack on a Philadelphia radio station, WMMR. And uh, somebody at the label hears that. And so, um, as I mentioned, they get to sign him by getting Rip to agree to um, to just hold on to um, some of the publishing rights up and through 1986 as the bridge. Um, he signs with Columbia in 73. He eventually gets his publishing rights back because Walter Yet- Yetnikoff, who was the president of Columbia Records at the time, threatens him. Threatens Artie Rip. He says, I'm going to break your neck if you don't do this. This is the right thing to do. And so he eventually acquiesces and gets Billy Joel his, his um, publishing rights back. But real quick, before we get to Piano Man, he, he also got a little bit of interest from Atlantic. And do you guys know why he did not sign with Atlantic Records? No, I didn't even know he got interest from it. Yeah. Jerry Wexler heard Piano Man and said, you know, that sounds way too much like Mr. Bojangles. I don't think we think that's great. And, you, you know, you play the piano a little too much. You might want to back off a little bit on that. I was going to say it was, <laughs> had to be Jerry Wexler. And uh, and Billy Joel's like, well, to hell with you. And ends up going with wow. uh, with Columbia. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I'm surprised Jerry Wexler usually uh, has better insight than that. I don't know what to tell know, you. I can, I can see the connection with Mr. Bojangles, but there's nothing about the connect i mean i'm i'm not i don't mean to say connection but similarity yeah but neither one of them out neither one of them makes the other one unnecessary yeah it's not like they they live in a world where they're they're uh yeah they cancel the other one out yeah it is it's a weird thing that's that is a weird thing to say i wonder why he's too much piano at that's what makes it work you play too much is what he told him you play too much he is a busy piano player (laughs) He does play he some rapid arpeggios, and I don't find them unappealing at all. Oh, that's what oh, makes him right. Billy Joel. Yeah. yeah. So. I, I would love for someone that knows a lot more about music than I do to sit me down and explain to me what Elton John does and what Billy Joel does. I think it would be fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think you're right. So, uh, in 73, he releases his first album for Columbia, which is Piano Man. It's produced by a guy named Michael Stewart, who, on a side note, was in the Kingston Trio. <laughs> that should <laughs> tell, right. you, tell you what you need to know. Um, it explores a little bit more variety, um, and it starts working. He starts getting these extended story songs, like The Ballad of Billy the Kid, Captain Jack, and, of course, mm-hmm. the title track. Um well, the title track, I think, was a top was it a top twenty, top twenty five hit for him. The year it was released, Billy Joel only netted eight thousand dollars from that album. If you can believe that, <laughs> I can't believe that. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. I I would not be excited about having my face on the cover of this album with that kind of close up. I don't know. It's kind of it's not a bad album cover. It's almost, he almost looks like a witch. Yeah, it's he kind does. of ghostly looking. He looks like uh, yeah. one of the three si- sister witches in uh, Macbeth. <laughs> We're talking about the cover of Piano Man, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah. So the next album he, re- he releases is... Oh, uh, are we going to play Piano oh, Man? Oh, jeez. Sorry. Yes. Sorry, yeah. JM. I'll just sing it for us. Saturday, regular crowd shuffles in. There's an old man sitting next to me. Making love to his tonic and gin For those of you who've never listened to the radio, that was Piano Man <laughs> by Billy Joel. And yeah. okay, so it's a waltz, and Mr. Bojangles is a waltz, and yeah. it's about drunks. That's I, I don't and think, it's a and it and it's a descending. Oh line yeah, it does. Yeah. It's got that descending. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But come on, chord progression. Give yeah. me a break. That's Piano Man's a great song. Yeah, it's a fantastic song. It's one of those songs that you hear on the radio all the time, and it's hard it's to one of the. It's one. It's in that small category. That yeah, I don't. Yep. You don't, don't, don't get sick of it. I'm not sick of it. Yep. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100. percent I call those uh, Harbor Freight songs now because Harbor Freight always has classic radio playing. Oh yeah, <laughs> every time I go in there, and I go, you know, I'm not sick of this one. <laughs> So his, uh, his third album, second one for Columbia, is called Street Life Serenade. It's also released in 74, and it's also produced by Michael Stewart. Um, and you can tell by those songs that Billy Joel is a little sick of California by this time, and he <laughs> wants to head back. So so then he does come back to uh, New York, and he's completely happy that he's back in New York, so much so that he writes songs about being back in New York. Mm-hmm. Well, the, yeah, songs. on the uh, um, piano man. No, 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 the album. Uh, oh, uh, Streetlight Serenade or Street yeah, Life Serenade. That has some songs that became hits later on that live album too, like "I Am the Entertainer," mm-hmm. and there's another one. Like yeah, that we should explain that he released well, Streetlight li- Serenader was one of the songs that became a hit. Billy Joel releases a live album that has his back catalog songs from his back catalog on it and they the attic or yeah and they become they become hits because of that people start getting into songs that weren't radio hits at the time people want to hear them when they go see him live always including captain jack and yeah she's got she's got a way yeah yeah so Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of good songs on these old oh and ballad ballad of billy the kid is incredible on that again with billy the kid everybody's singing about everybody's got to sing about billy, billy the kid. kid i'll never understand that yeah i i would uh 
ask everyone to look at the Brady Bunch uh, where they showed young Bobby that Billy the Kid was not a hero. <laughs> That'll learn you. You don't think That'll, Billy Joel yeah. saw that one? I, I'm, I'm sure. Or Warren Zevon saw that one. I think this predates. Yeah. Or Elton John saw that yeah. one. How many other people yeah. we talked about saying about Billy the Kid? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you got old uh, Joe Ely. Yeah. Joe Ely left Billy the Kid swinging. He goes, I didn't like the way he wore his gun. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next, JM? What album comes out? What album? The what? What's the album he works on? The one we talked. I guess we've already talked about it. The one in. Uh, that he recorded at Caribou, but also ended up re-recording Turnstiles yeah. in 70, 76. Turnstile jump. Now this this album is got some great songs on it. This is a good <laughs> this is a good uh, yeah. song. It's at Miami twenty seventeen. It's you know, amazing. What's interesting yeah. is when they were recording it, uh, did I mention this already? That when they were recording at Caribou that they used Elton John's band? Yeah, no, we didn't, but that's something we, did, we you should mentioned talk. it earlier, not on the not on tape. Yeah, they used they yeah. used Elton John's band, and Billy Joel's like, I'm already compared to Elton John all the time. Why do I need to use right. his band as well? You know, but yeah. whatever. Um, so, they, so they pack up and go to uh, New York to record Turnstiles with his and with he, his live band. With his live band, and uh, he just he's so happy that he he starts writing these songs about uh, being back in New York and you know say goodbye to Hollywood, which was another song that became a hit later and then um, what's the big one on that one jam one of my all-time favorite songs new york state of mind some folks like to get away take a holiday from the neighborhood have a flight to miami beach or a It really is what he's good at. Yeah, yep. it really is. That's... He is so good at that. Those heavy left-handed chords and those little, you know, trills yeah, at the top of the piano. His phrasing is oh, really good. Yeah, incredible and, song. And he is a really believable New Yorker. Like Paul Simon. <laughs> really no, yeah, it's it. a val very valid and point. One of the things I'm going to talk about with this album that we're about to go into is for people like us who grew up in a way different world, mm -hmm. I always find this stuff very intriguing. I think I mentioned before watching Sesame Street as a kid and trying to figure out where are they. Because it's it it's did so look foreign. like a neighborhood. It's to so me foreign, yeah. Because there's no well, yards, you know, and yeah, it's I mean, all I, I think. People yelling at each other yeah. from fire escapes and all yeah. that stuff. That's I'm sure heavily romanticized, but for yeah. for people in Texas, it's just really interesting. I, I thought about you because I saw somebody talk about going to Asbury Park for the first time because they they were like you. They lived someplace that was so foreign to uh -huh. it, but Springsteen had. And he went. He goes. I went to Asbury Park. Man, do I wish I hadn't gone to Asbury Park because <laughs> it just didn't live up to it, you know. Well, I mean, it's yeah, it's dead now. You yeah, know, but yeah. it's kind of like coming to Austin. Expect to see Austin from '73. So, yeah. what what happens between this album and the and and uh, the album we're talking about and the last one, Turnstiles, is he ends up playing these shows at Carnegie Hall. I think three nights in a row at Carnegie Hall, and by all accounts, they're incredible shows. And one of the guys in the crowd is Phil Ramone. And yeah. so 
this is after he had already turned down um, George, Martin. George Martin. And he and Phil Ramone go across the street at, to this Italian restaurant to talk about working together. And immediately Phil Ramone's like, God, I love the energy on stage. Man, that band is great. I want to use your band. And I love the rough edges and everything Billy Joel yeah. had been talking about that he wanted to do with his recordings. Phil Ramone is saying that to him before he even opens his mouth. And it's it's seems like lightning has yeah. struck a bottle in a bottle, and he's like, yeah. okay, this is the guy I need to work with. And he'd heard yeah. about him because of Paul Simon. He had done, um, uh, what is it? Uh, still crazy, still crazy after, after all these years. years. Um, and he was also a musician. He was a, a child prodigy. I think he was a violinist. And yeah. I I didn't double check this, but supposedly he recorded or was involved in miking or somehow involved in. Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday yeah, to JFK. She, yeah, exactly. It was his idea to record it. Yeah. And, and so, so he's, he's, and the guy is, they should make a movie about him. He is a phenomenal guy. He, he, he's an inventor. He invented a lot of the techniques that are, that you use in the studio. Um, he was really instrumental in getting CDs pushed to the marketplace. In fact, the first CD that was commercially available was, 52nd Street, the album after this. Really? By, I thought yeah, we already did Bill a Jones. record that was the first CD. No, it was the first so. digital. No, we did the first digital recorded oh. album. Was, I didn't, but this is the first, oh, that's that was right. the first was a... CD that was pressed. Huh. Um, he has produced everyone from... Uh, well, let me get some get my notes up here. But it, it's it's remarkable what he's done. He's He does classical music. He's He was much more of a classical musician than a um than a pop musician but um just some of the people he's worked with um bob dylan sheena easton um gloria estefan okay so natalie cole james taylor barbara streisand rod stewart uh, oh he did uh he did uh a star is born Yes, he yeah, did a star. He did a star is born. born. Yeah, so he did a, did a lot of um, the first of, one, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, not the remake. And he's also done a lot of classical albums, like in and specifically live albums. Like he's that's kind of his forte. Like he can get really good live sounds, and um, especially in the classical realm. Well, and and that's something to talk about because this album was essentially recorded live, and one of the things. Billy Joel talks about as being such an important sound of the album was that as much as they try to minimize the bleed from stuff, that it still happened and it actually helps with the organic sound of the album. It it adds a warmth to it that it wouldn't otherwise have had. Yeah. So he, at the time he was pretty much a go-to guy at Columbia records. Um, And he um, just, like I said, he's just done so much for the, for the music industry. I think he got a, a Grammy, for this um, song, or I mean, for uh, for this album, yeah, yeah. Do, for, uh, do do we know of any other producer that's on the cover with the band? <laughs> yeah, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan was with John Hammond. Yeah, but he wasn't a producer, was he? Yeah, I guess he was executive producer. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it's just yeah, that's, that's a it's question. it's speak yeah speak. I mean, they thought of him as as part of the band and i think he would uh, billy joel was just so overjoyed like you said jam about not being only being in new york or playing with his band but having a guy who was like actually helping him realize the vision he had for so long 
Well, you Billy know? Joel says this album was an absolute delight to me. He said it was a blast. I think everybody is, it was involved said it was just so much fun. That yeah. sounds like they're having fun. It, do, it does sound like they're well, having fun. Given that, yeah. would we like to talk about this album? Would we like to talk about this album? Is that what we do on this podcast? Every album tells a story, Tony. Every album tells a story. That would be a great, uh, a great tagline, Doug. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's it's used Sorry. sort of elsewhere. <laughs> There's right. a tale um, told by uh, every collection of songs put on one's disc. So yeah, so we we've, we've talked about the band. Um, yeah, you the, should talk band, about. You should say who's in the band, Jam. Okay, well, there's the the thing that makes this, it's not quite a full band album because the two guitar players that are his, that eventually I think they did go on to play with him on other albums. Uh, they're not on this album, but he does have uh, his kind of go-to guy for a while there named Richie Kanada, um, who Richie he's an organizer. He plays the most of the saxophone parts. Uh, I mean, the clarinet, the saxophone the on this album is a highlight. He doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't play the saxophone solo. Though. He doesn't play the saxophone solo. That's correct. But he plays. He's also one of the organ players. So he's kind of his uh, right hand man. This guy Richie kind of became his right hand. Yeah, man. He's a multi instrumentalist, right? But he plays yeah. a bunch of and stuff. Multi instrumentalist. And he actually left the band to start a studio. I think this is in 1983. He said, "I'm I'm done touring. I want to." For my, I want to. I'm much more interested in the recording process. I want to um, start a studio, and he went on to have a successful career as a producer and um, a studio owner. Um, Hiram Bullock, who passed away not too long ago, he everybody knows him, I guess, from the early days of the David Letterman uh, Late Night with David Letterman. He was the guitar, the original guitar player for that band. Really? Um, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, and then you have the great Doug Stegmeier, who was a troubled, troubled individual, but such a good bass player. The bass um, on this album is good. The bass on this album is fantastic, yep. and he was he was so good, but he obviously had some mental issues. He played with um, everyone from Debbie Gibson to Holland Oates, and he played with Billy Joel for a really long time, but he, um, he was not the best easiest guy to get in and um get along with he committed suicide mm. uh, in 1995 unfortunately um but the guy i really want to talk about is he only plays on one track but the track that he plays on he makes his uh, presence very very known is a guy named richard t and he has played with so many people if you ever hear the concert in the park by uh, paul simon and and uh, art garfunkel he does the piano part on um, Bridge Over Troubled uh, Waters. Bridge Over Troubled oh, Waters. Really. And it's just unbelievable. He's played with Peter Gabriel. He plays a lot of those keyboard parts on So. Um, just a phenomenal play. He's played with so many people. He passed away, unfortunately, about 30 years ago. But you, he's played on Slip Sliding Away by Paul Simon. Just oh, that's the that iconic organ. Yeah. Um, and he he's he played every keyboard instrument in the world. He's played with Diana Ross, Trevor um, Washington Jr., Quincy Jones, Dwayne Allman played on his album. I mean, Dwayne Allman's a pretty good organ player, and to have Richard T come in and, and is uh, yeah, 
So this guy was was really really good. Unfortunately, like I said, he passed away. He wasn't he, always in the best of health. And he played he played on one song on this album, correct? Yeah, the last the last song. Yeah. Um, and then the last guy I want to talk about is uh, Liberty DeVito, the, the drum player. And the drums, I think, really really make this album stand out quite a bit. It, it he, he is so he he play he's got such a an amazing touch. He can play incredibly hard, I, and but at the same time, he's just got he can do a light a nice light touch with a rim shot and stuff. There's not a lot of drummers that can do that. So uh, hats off to Liberty Devito. Do you so. do you know anything about Hugh McCracken? Other than that's a I, funny funny name. <laughs> <laughs> his, no. his brother is Phil, right? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> No, I don't know anything about uh, Hugh McCracken. Because he plays on a number of songs, plays acoustic guitar on a number of songs. Oh, yeah. He played on Blow On Your Mind by uh, Van Morrison. Played the guitar, acoustic guitar parts on that. All right. So, uh, Ram on Paul, Paul McCartney. So, yeah. He, Ram Jam. Session work. Ram Jam. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray that's the last time we mention that song on this podcast. <laughs> So yeah, anyways, some great studio musicians on this album. All right, and live musicians as well. But, yeah. So. And that brings us to our first song tonight, T. It does. What song would that be, Mr. Doug? Moving out, baby. Moving out. Anthony, whatever. That's what it's all about. Mama, if that's moving out, then I'm moving out. That's a really, really Yankee song. <laughs> I mean, that, I hear all that New York stuff all over that song. I do too, and it was, you know, he's talking about hack and sack. You know, not um, in a, not in a good way. Not in a good way. It's funny because that's I, we should have mentioned that uh, the uh, is it hack and sack on that um, Fountains of Wayne album we talked about. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. There's another connection. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I love the, I, I love that. Uh, I guess I can't tell if it's a clarinet or a soprano sax in the guitar line that's going along with that. Well, there's two guitarists uh, on this song. Yeah, there's two guitarists doing those those lines, and then there's there's something that's doubling it. Um, and it's there's a little Paul McCartney on here. Yeah, there's a little Paul McCartney on a lot of stuff. Yeah, the, when it starts talking about Sergeant O'Leary, I I just yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is this a- so it there, Lane. It looks like it's just saxophones on this song jam. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess he's playing a soprano sax. No way a tenor sax could do that. So what's the song about, Doug? <laughs> I think it is a rejection of the American materialistic commercialized existence. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. It's okay. that's one of I mean that's it's, one of things. It's, it's a it's a universal theme like I'm gonna bust my hump for my whole life for this yeah i say right i'm moving out and i'm going somewhere else and then it, in real in the real world you go somewhere else and find out that you have to bust your out <laughs> for the same thing but if you yeah. become a rock and roll star i guess it doesn't matter 
the uh right. yeah um i this this is this album has and the only reason i bring it up because i know they were contemporaries but springsteen was around before billy joel this song or this album has a lot of that sort of story element that Bill, that Springsteen has right. in his songs. Yep. Like this, well, we're going to yeah. draw on characters. We're going to talk about them in the third person. We're going to tell a little story about them. Very, right. very rooted in. Uh, uh, yeah, cover is going to yeah. look like it. Yeah, cover definitely. The back, the back cover looks like uh, it could yeah. be the same. Right. I mean, there's nothing. It, it, this is going to be a theme throughout the whole album, but there, there's no new themes here. He's not treading any sort of new ground. Um, and he is, he's covering some of the working class stuff that Springsteen does. Yeah. But they approach it so differently. I didn't even notice it when I was a kid. listening to both of them. Yeah. Right. Right. A couple of interesting production things. So the ack, 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 ack thing. Yeah. Billy Joel wanted that to be a delay. And so he sang it to Phil Ramone. He's like, how do we get that? And he's like, do just what you did. It's going to take us four hours to try to figure out how to do it on delay. Just sing it yourself. And so he did. He just yeah, did the, I think it works. I do too. I think it works too. The, yeah. the original song was a ballad that had been bouncing around in Bully Joel's head. And when he sang, like sang the tune to the band, they all started laughing. They're like, where'd you get that? It's like, why? You're like, it's the laughing in the rain by Neil Sedaka. Like, he's oh, like, yeah. what? Right. So, so he had to, he had to upbeat it a bit to get that, uh, yeah. that out of the, That's um, right. it's it's a pretty good way to start the record and uh, yeah it's it's not one of my favorite songs on the record but i no i do think it is very (laughs) indicative of what's about to come on 52nd street Mm -hmm. with my life and uh, big shot and some of those exactly i think you're right we i think you're right we can't we can't move on without talking about the outro to the song. I think I would, oh yeah, I, with those, I, I those. think I would have ended differently. Well, you wouldn't really? have. You wouldn't. You wouldn't have. What, what would you have changed? Uh, motorcycle noises or whatever. Well, it's it a is. Corvette. It's a '60s Corvette. But what about essentially ripping off Layla? Oh, the outro to Layla. Thankfully, See, I don't. Oh well, it, JM. I'm gonna I'm gonna call call you on that because <laughs> Billy Joel actually in night in 2019 played this song live and went into the outro of Layla at the end of it. So, so say what you want to, but it's an obvious homage or ripoff or what do you want to call it. It is. The, the only great thing about it is it's not 20 minutes no, long. it's very short. Now, yeah. the reason it's why is they faded out on it. According to Billy Joel, they the band kept playing and they were looking over at Phil Ramone and he's like, just keep going. We don't know how much of this we're going to keep. So, it could have been yeah. an outro like Layla. Thankfully, they cut it yeah. short. And it's not, it's, yeah, for someone who actually likes the outro on Lola, it's really inappropriate use of that tune. That's a real tender, um, heartbreaking tune. And this is not a tender, heartbroken moment when the guy. Well, I don't think it's, I don't think he does it. I love those guitars doing that, bound, that unison yeah, at they, the end of it. I love that. Well, I put in my notes earlier that the ending makes me like the song less. Than I do during huh. the song. Well, the single oh, version uh, doesn't have the Corvette revving on it. Oh, it's yeah. only the album. Yeah, right. If you hear it on the radio, that isn't typically played. Well, and it's not just the Corvette. There's there's just a lot loss of energy. I, at, yeah, at the end. I, and agree. I guess if they're doing Layla, that makes sense. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to listen to it more. I, I like the ending. In fact, I like. I would I, love I, to I, have it end with 
a uh, accelerated saxophone deal yeah. going into uh, the sunset. But this, um, so this song hit number seventeen on the charts. It actually was pulled. They released it, and then they pulled it because, um, because uh, just the way you are started moving up the charts. And for I don't know why you wouldn't want two songs on the charts yeah, at the same time, but they pulled it and then re-released it afterwards. But anyway. Oh well, that's oh, a good song. It's a, it's a good song, and what comes next is also a song. <laughs> <laughs> this is the title track. The Stranger. So this is the Billy Joel song that makes me like his voice less than any other uh, Billy Joel song. Hmm. With the ow, gonna, ow, ow, ow. I agree with you. I think that this is where Billy Joel's uh, is not at his strong point. We'll talk about this later, but he's, uh, you know, I, I have this book that says that goes through the worst rock and roll albums of all time. And there's a segment at the end about the worst rock and rollers of all time. I can't remember if Billy Joel is number one or number two. I think Paul McCartney is one or oh, two. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, I'm just telling you. Come on. But, <laughs> but um, I think there's a point there. I don't think that Billy Joel really has that growl voice, and there's when Not he on does song, but he has on others. He can growl, but but if we're gonna bring that up, whoever wrote that, if that was the caveat to bad rock and roller, needs to listen to a couple of late Beatles era songs, yeah, exactly. with McCartney growling amazingly well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I agree. Helter Skelter, anybody? Writing, if I'm writing a song about bad rock and roll, I'm I'm not gonna go to McCartney. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> That's but silly. I can see their point on this because he he does not quite have the voice for, for this kind of song. This, the thing this song, is though, the, go ahead. The plane is in, the plane is incredible yeah. on it. it the, and the band the, sounds great, but yeah. Um, I, I I guess we're in a detective novel from the '30s, and we're walking down the street <laughs> and it's I, a lamp. I, and yeah, I see that too. And, yeah. I don't hear the '30s. I hear the '70s. I think this is the one. There, so Billy Joel has the ability to write. I think timeless tunes. They don't sound necessarily like well, they're of the of he the does, time. There's some traps where he gets caught in the. But 70s, this so sounds like yeah. the '70s to me. Well, I'm song. talking about that beginning with. Oh, oh well, you know what's, was, you know what's cool. Yeah. What's cool about that? I think this is a cool story. He he when he wrote the song, he wanted an outro and an intro that sort of introduced the song. And so he's right. talking to Phil Phil Ramone, and he's like, "Okay, this is what I want to sound like." And he whistles it. He's like, "Okay, what instrument can we use?" And Phil Ramone's like, "You just did it. That's great. That's perfect." <laughs> he's like, "Huh?" He's like, "The whistle's perfect." Yeah. He and, whistled yeah. that himself. Yeah. That's a pretty good whistle. Yeah. And and uh just goes again to show the Phil Ramone understood yeah. some things. That, that is you yeah. know he did. Um, yeah. and so that's one of the, it, this song uh, does not fit with its chorus. Uh, uh that da, 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 yeah. and, and when they, and that happens again on this album. But when he goes they go from this bitter 
mm-hmm. angry, yeah, uh, angular, right. angular uh, attack, and then it goes. It's yeah. oh, we Barry Manilow's here now. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't. I, I see what you're coming from there. Yeah, I get it. It's not, it's not one of the best songs on the album. I think, and it's odd that it's, it's, it's the title song, but no. But again, this guy, how old is he when he wrote this? Like, Twenty. He's Twenty-eight 20, when this album came out, right? Yeah. All right. So yeah, maybe you should have known a little bit better. So but anyway. It, yeah. I mean, it's insp- it was inspired by two things. I think it's inspired by his rela- his relationship wasn't the greatest at this moment, even though well, there's songs on this album that he wrote for his wife. And he's finding out he's part of the problem, which I appreciate. But the other thing is, it's inf- it was influenced by a suicide attempt. So there's that darkness in the song, yeah. too. So you're right about the chorus kind of being in a weird feeling to the rest of the song. Well, he, but He does okay, this so- more than once where he puts a chorus or a bridge with a tune and they're very bad matches. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but I, it the, the the lyric or the, the the verses are kind of dark, but then he says that don't be afraid to try again. Every everyone goes south every now and then. You've done it. Why can't someone else? You should know by now. You've been there yourself. Like, hey, just trust in yourself. And then he goes back into yeah, we're all. Yeah, I agree that people. it's a good message, but I. Uh, but how? What are, if you're going to do that message? I think you should have that little upbeat. Yeah, you should. Part. And and I can say, wow, that's a great message, and I don't want to hear this song anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We move on, and this is a song. Some of y'all may have heard this one before. <laughs> Just the way you are. I took the good times I'll take the bad times I'll take you just the way you are Don't go trying Some new fashion Don't change the color this is an enormous hit. Yeah. Yeah. And big a- boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. <laughs> so this is one of the songs he wrote for his wife. It, and the, yeah. the the interesting story about it is he gave it to her on her birthday. So I wrote this song for you. And her response was, do I get publishing for it too? Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. He initially thought she was joking, but looking back on things, he realized she was likely not joking. About so it. that makes uh, she's always a woman make more sense. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's funny how misunderstood this song is, and I, I think anybody with half a brain, like people, thought it was misogynistic, that it was anti-woman. Yes. Yes. And Gosh. anybody with half a brain listening to the lyrics realized that's not the point at all. I I don't know how you all. hear this song and think that it's a you know an anti-woman song, but um. Because he doesn't want her to change? No, what he says is, I mean, people are saying that, oh, yeah, but what he's saying is that um, I don't like you I account. like you the way you are. You don't need to change for me. Change for yourself, fine, but please don't do it for me because and he's saying I'm, that you're perfect. She should just not, she should hold herself back and not to attempt to, to become what she can be. Yeah. I don't um, know. That's ridiculous. It's just dumb. Um, I, I, I'd like that there's dumb people out there, though. I, they keep me entertained on Twitter. So, there's a bit of a history to this song. Uh, the original version of it was um, <laughs> was a cha-cha. And uh, Billy Joel hated it. 
And so Phil yeah. Ramone says to uh, Liberty DeVito, he's like, um, hey, I got this idea. Let's play it. And and JM, maybe you can talk about this if you know what this is. It's a South American Bayon rhythm, which they just describe it as a backward samba. I don't know what oh. that means. But yeah, I'm um, not sure I know what that means. But they said it worked once they did once they did that, it worked. Like the song. Well, the, percussion, the percussion is really incredible on this song. Uh, if, if you listen to it, there's just so much going on in the background. Liberty DeVito is really not playing that much drums, but there's just there's so much. Uh, I guess he's playing the percussion parts on it. Yeah. But there it's like well, a full on this, I mean, nice little loop to have. I, I think that this has the most trappings of the seventies of any song on the album. I, I'm going to agree with you. Is that because it, it's, it's something of that age with that Fender Rhodes piano, that saxophone. Sound. It's Phil Woods. We blame yeah. Phil Woods for this, right? <laughs> the saxophone player on the song. It's a well-constructed song. In fact, Very we're much. about to go through a period of um, a lot of well-constructed songs. So yeah, that's, that's, yeah. That sax solo was six different solos pieced together. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Is that he, right? He played oh. six different solos, and Billy Joel said he was worried the whole time when Full Ramon was splicing, because that was at a time when you you cut it with, with razors and tape. Yeah, you had to mark it with a white pen. And he's and- like, oh, my God, what we're going to lose this. We're going to lose No, 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 trust me. I know what I'm doing. And he got that, so- that solo out of it. They still hate the band, and Billy Joel still hated the song. They thought it sounded like yeah. a, some what? What's it to me? Oh, a gloppy wedding ballad is the way he describes well, it. It does, and it's, uh, it sounds exactly like, how many uh, times yeah. have been played at a wedding? And they didn't if, want. If, and they, well, it, a lot find, of times if, now. If they don't want, um, we've only just begun. They pick yeah. this, and so yeah. they didn't want it on there. And so that's when Phil Marone brought in. Um, uh, Linda Ronstadt and Phoebe Snow and played it for him, and they're like, oh. And yeah. Billy, it changed Billy Joel's mind. Um, I would bet that women like this song more than men do. He was right. Yeah. It was his yeah. first gold single. It won two Grammys. Um, but I think Billy Joel was also right. I think this song um, gives people the wrong impression about him. In a it lot does. Of ways. And it, it does. It does me. Yeah. Uh, I didn't but start. That- I didn't start out this album the way I meant to. And. I was going to say that this is a Puff the Magic Dragon album for me. What does that mean? And as you know, little Johnny Pepper mm-hmm. loved that dragon Puff. Mm-hmm. But then he he sent Puff out to sea and said, I'm, I'm too big. I'm a big boy. I don't mm-hmm. need this. This yeah. is an album I bought very, very early, whenever it came out. Yeah, was, Doug, was, I'm exactly the same way. Yeah, I, I loved it when it came out. I was and a young think, kid, and I was listening yeah. to this record over and over and over again. I got older. Oh, I'm much too sophisticated. This right, is, exactly. This is too um, I, gentle and yeah. too... Uh, this is too much holiday holiday, lo- holiday, holiday like, lounge music for me. I'm too sophisticated. Like, and yeah. I, I abandoned it, just like... Little Jackie Paper abandoned Puff and man, I, you're it's so right. That's exactly the same reaction that I had to it. I mean, I put it in the camp of. I mean, I think it straddles Paul Simon and Barry Manilow. Oh, that's interesting. Is, and that's it, a really it, interesting take, Jam. Yeah, uh, but and this song goes firmly in the Barry Manilow, Manilow camp. But there's some. It comes back, roaring back in the. In the Paul Simon category, I think I, I can um, I can remember a time when I was I think I was considering getting rid of all my Billy Joel albums and thinking yeah 
you know, I don't, I don't want to be associated with that. Well, you and I were talking before we started. I had not listened to this album probably 15 years. Maybe yeah. longer. Yeah. And, and we'll yeah. get to the reason why. There's a reason why. I, right. It's, yeah, different different it's different than your reason. <laughs> but, um, yeah. But one, of the, one of the blessings of this podcast is I've learned to tell myself to shut up. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, really, I've really spanked the guy that thought he was such a sophisticated and snob yeah. and put him in the closet. And he's not allowed to come out for a long time. Well, I'm able to do two things when we do albums. Albums I love, I kind of force myself to listen to them with a fr- as much as I can with a fresh set of ears to find things yeah. that maybe I just kind of, oh, that's no big deal, when really it's something you crit- ought to be critical about. It's a family member. Yeah. You can yeah. overlook it. Yeah. And right. then the other thing is opening myself up to stuff that I just, for whatever reason, said, I'm not interested in this. And right. you got to be, because yeah. otherwise, how are you going to talk about it? So, right. um, Well, one of the, yeah. This song is more sophisticated than I gave it credit for, too, um, because, you know, I've seen it played usually by girls playing 12 string guitars, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and it's just it, and they just it's boring. But there's a really cool part at the end of this. And it, I, he's got to be taking this from the Beatles. He goes to, to a flat six, then it goes to a seven and then it goes back to the one. And it's at the very end of the song before that solo comes in. I love you just the way you are with that part is just makes this song for me. Oh, he had just kept it the same way. It, it's, it's so interesting the way that he ends the song and the Beatles do that. They, they've been in some songs like that. Um, but it's, 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 a really it's cool interesting thing. that um, I would have so, so much prejudice against the song when it sounds a lot like, one of the songs that was the first song I ever fell in love with. Oh, yeah, we got we to gotta talk about that, don't we? I had an AM radio, and I would listen to KNOW, AM, <laughs> that was an AM station. I put it under my pillow and listen to it and then play all the pop songs. And one of the pop songs that was magical, especially when you're about to fall asleep, was Big Boys Don't Cry. I'm not in love. ACC was I'm not in love. I'm not ACC. That's a college. Ten CC. Um, Ten CC. All right. I'm not in love. And, and why are we talking about that? Because the sound. It's it sounds the same sound. Here we go. And that doesn't even include the saxophone, which no. is, which is very much the same. Yeah. Uh, now I thought I was so brilliant figuring this out at the gym, <laughs> and then I come to the podcast and find out both Tony and JM are all over it already. So it's extremely disappointing for me. I was expecting to play it and go, "Aha!" And they were going to go, "Oh, wow, man! Well, wow! How well, did you the, ever figure that out?" And it's not—it's not a ripoff, and it's just the production that was used on both the songs is 
yeah. I, the same. The same sort of Which organ sound, same I, sort of. I think yeah. somebody, I think Fender somebody Rhodes heard sound. that and thought, and how yeah. how can you blame them? I I don't know if anybody knows about the production on the 10 CC record, but it was like 76 mm-hmm. layered yeah. takes of ah. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah, really a remarkable to, production. They had to have the tape go around the whole interior of the control room of the studio uh, to get that loop going. And uh, so yeah, it's it. I, we got to put that a link to that on the. Uh, yeah, we need to do that whole album. That uh, yeah. What is it? The original Anyways. motion picture soundtrack. <laughs> All right. So 10CC probably had some influence on this record. I think so. I'd say so. Yeah. Anyway, our next song, which is not as big a hit, but uh, in in my opinion, a much more interesting song. Yeah. Scenes from an Italian restaurant. It all depends upon your appetite I'll meet you anytime you want In our Italian restaurant The problem with playing these little clips that we get, we're kind of forced to have to play so is we, we don't get to get to the real meat and right. potatoes of the the tune. Well, this is a, this is a tough one to, to get to the meat and potatoes. You would have so to play a lot of clips. Yeah, this is three anyone songs. Want to, anyone want to guess how many chords there are in this song? Oh Lord, no! How many? Forty. Wow. Well, this this is this is a song that was inspired by the second side of Abbey Road. He is said, that right? "Yeah, he's like because he, he had I mentioned before that he had bit bits of the song already written, and so uh, he wanted to splice them together to make kind of a cohesive." St- now, uh, to be fair, Abbey Road is not thematically cohesive. The second At all. side of it, this At is all. this is. Yeah. Um, and then he, I think it's really interesting how he uses a saxophone as kind of a, almost a time travel thing. So he's yeah. in the present mm-hmm. day at the restaurant talking yeah, to his. It's no, like that's a good, how we yeah. use. Um, we've good all tool. been here yeah. before. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, that's really good. This is a fantastic song. I love this song. Um, this, this is nipping at the heels of my favorite song. I, I love this song, um, and it's it's haunted me my whole life since I bought yeah. their album because I feel like I should have my favorite Italian restaurant and everywhere I've ever lived. I tried to establish a small mom and pop restaurant, Italian restaurant where I would go and sit in the same place every time and think, Oh, "Oh, this is nice. And then say, well, and then nobody gets their phone out while they're eating. (laughs) And you go, so you're going to get whacked. Do you remember (laughs) Yeah, you got your gun in the, above the toilet in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> but you go, you remember the last time we were here? Yeah. it's It seems like here is, doesn't it, darling? And, and, yeah. But I've never been able to establish a favorite Italian restaurant. It's, oh, go to Reale's on 183. It is it Is, is it in a strip center? Yep. I can't go to, I can't have my favorite. Is we're going to, for Lindsay's birthday, we're going to that place that's in the old Huts building, Sammy's. Is it good? Oh, I don't right. know. We've never been, but it's supposed to be Maybe fantastic. Maybe that will be my... I'll anyway, let you know. It's really, it's really bothered me. And also, I can't eat Italian food because it's all pasta and it makes me fat. But um, yeah. 
That's okay. Anyway, it's I, worth it. It's I, so it's, good. I keep trying to take myself out of the restaurant where uh, the Al Pacino character kills the <laughs> cop <laughs> guy, a cop in the <laughs> in the Godfather. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I'm not get your mind out of that. Think about the fun times you've had in Little Italy. I think it's more you know? like the restaurants in Moonstruck. Yeah. That's that's more uh-huh. more like anyway, that. Anyway, we don't have that down here so no. much as they do up there. No. They probably got one that's of these true. on every it, corner that you go to, and yeah. and this walk, you walk in and you know everybody's name. Well, this was inspired a little bit by that restaurant across the street from Carnegie Hall where he and Phil yeah. Ramone met. Um, yeah, you know, that's what I don't. I wonder which part of the song he had written earlier. It yeah, if it was the 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 ballad of uh, of yeah. um what did, what are their names? Jeez, that's horrible. It's Brenda and Eddie. Uh, Brenda and Eddie, yeah. Brenda, or Brenda if it's and Eddie, yeah. so, yeah, and th- those are two people who peaked a little early. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, there's, there's we've three, all seen that. We've there's all three seen pieces that. of this song. Mm-hmm. The or, the part we just heard, which right. is two people sitting down in an Italian restaurant. Right. I don't know who those two people are. Right. Uh, I assumed it was him and an old friend. I think that's right. And then they start talking about. Whatever happened to Brenda and uh-huh. Eddie? But I read a review they that go said back. the two people sitting there were Brenda. And no, Eddie. it's not because and it's no, in the third no person. Way. It doesn't it, make no any way. sense. If it if it is Brenda and Eddie, then it's horribly written. No, it's not Brenda yeah, and Eddie. It's, it's two. It's exactly what you talked about. It's two old friends sitting at the restaurant reminiscing about old times. And he even gets to the part where he talks about how he's doing okay. But hey, yeah. you remember this? These two people yeah. and what happened to well, them? Yeah. The, the part two is. Um, that's the McCartney part. Oh yeah, with the horns yeah. and yeah. The engineer yeah. boots, leather yeah. jackets, and tight blue jeans, and it's yeah, woo, 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 and yeah. a tuba going. It's so good. Um, I mean, I see it. It's almost like a movie. It's like the two of them are having a flash. They're, they're having dinner. They're having, and then they and they get they get a little, and uh, then they get a little get conversation. A little it's like Broadway. Yeah, like Broadway. Don uh, Danny Rose when they they start talking about the story of Broadway Danny Rose, and it goes back to the flashback of mm-hmm. them, and then it ends with them. That's how I see it. Of course, yeah, I think it, I think you're right. Of Jewish. And they're yeah. talking about the Village Green. Do we have Village? They greens? did up there. They did up there. I read <laughs> that they that they had Village Greens up there. So anyway, uh, in that part that's of the this song, this is the most sophisticated song he's ever written. I mean, he's got that that Dixieland jazz thing going on at some point. It's that's got part that, two. It, where it, yeah, it, and 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 there's a line in it that I absolutely love. It's a line that says they started to fight when the money got tight, but they didn't just count on the tears. That yeah. sums up exactly, exactly, like, exactly what somebody in that you know they're they're mm-hmm. everything's going good, but they're so young they don't understand what the real world's like, and then they go moving, they get married young, moving together, and oh my, the real world starts crashing down on them. So. Yeah, they never counted on the tears, and just that little <laughs> turn of phrase is so yeah. descriptive. Oh, and then to describe how cool their life is—they they got an apartment with deep pile carpets. You know, didn't it, they save up it, for a waterbed too? And they got a yeah. couple of pictures from Sears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and a waterbed. Yeah. One of the yeah. cool things about being a uh, millennial is you don't have to pretend that waterbeds are comfortable. That's right. I, re- I remember <laughs> sleeping on a waterbed. Oh, it's the worst. It's, Terrible. That's the worst. And I don't know how it ever became cool or sexy to have a water. Seventy is it beanbag chairs? There's a lot of weird stuff about it, the seventies. Oh, yeah. I but, just, I just. Except beanbag they chairs are coming back, man. My kids love beanbag chairs. I have a question. The last line of the song, or like the last part of the song, which is exactly like the first part of the song, with one exception: reds and whites are plural. 
Yeah. Why is that? I, I noticed that too. I Because you don't say that about wines. You say that about uppers and downers. Yeah. Resin. Okay, you, and I don't know why. It is, I, but why? Here's, here's, how, here's how I took it. Here's how I took it. They're drunk. Oh. <laughs> we can go get... We, we've just had this long conversation. Go arrest. Leave in the rest... Like, like we're not talking... Maybe at the first, they're kind of like having this nice civil conversation Wait. about... What would you like? Let's yeah. have a bottle of red, yeah. a bottle of white, maybe a rosé. And now they're like, hey, bottles of red, bottles of white, uh, you know, whatever mood yeah. you're in tonight. I'll meet you here again. I'm, I'm, I'm I, I noticed that, too, and I had I, – I thought it's, if it was done for the rhyme, that would make sense, but it's not. So I no, have no idea not. why it's – why it's done I don't way. think it's the drug thing, but it just struck me as an odd thing that you would that he yeah, is purposeful. I, but maybe um, it's a Yankee thing, maybe, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. No, if you're it, a Yankee, maybe you can answer this question for us. It, it's a really great song. I will say this though, you know, I I haven't listened to this album. I'm going to throw this out. You can cut it out if you want to, Doug, too. But um, I haven't listened to this album in a long, long time. And an album we've done since since then, an album that I what that was not part of my musical DNA, but is very much a part of it now. Um, colors songs like this for me now, and that's Bad Out of Hell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, listening to this song through the lens of Bad yeah. Out of Hell is a different experience than listening to it before I knew Bad Out of huh. Hell was around. Um, huh. I still love the song, but it's, it's, um, it, it doesn't quite have the same kind of awe effect that the nostalgia of it did before with that it bouncing around in my head. It's just well, an interesting little thing. This I don't know. song, this song went from one of, one of a group of songs I like to, it one of the premier songs that I like. Mm -hmm. It really, uh, after yeah. my long absence from it, I really liked it a lot again. Yeah, and uh, I, lo I love that it's, it's, that that yeah. idea that when you're in high school, you don't know that all the rules are about to change, right? And that Brenda right. and Eddie are oh man, they're the, the top of the pile, and all of that just goes away. And that's the distinction yeah. between Meatloaf's worldview and Billy Joel's worldview. Meatloaf is celebrating all that stuff still. He's still a big, dumb kid. Billy Joel's looking back on it and saying, hey, the real world, yeah. it, right. it takes a bite out of you from time to time. Yeah. You know? Right. right. So, yeah. anyway. It's, it's, and it has a great uh, saxophone. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Solo. Oh, yeah. And this, one of the, the playing one, like, on this part, is amazing. And yeah. the, the strings are incredible. If you listen to the part between part two, which is the uh, Paul McCartney mm -hmm. horn uh, deal, yeah. when it transitions to part three, mm -hmm. there's the most yeah. Elton Johnian uh, yeah. piano playing deal. Yeah. Oh yeah, let's give some kudos to his guitar, his piano playing. It's that part it's, is it's amazing. wonderful, but it sounds yeah. a lot like something off of Tangleweed Connection. Yeah, there's yeah. there's there's other moments which, of this which album. is mentioned uh, as one of his primary influences there's a lot of uh so, there's a lot of moments on this album that feel very much like uh he was listening sure. to a lot of elton john <laughs> yeah. as much as he well, hates it's, that. It's an, but how could it's you, an album how could of you its help time. It? yeah if you're yeah. a piano it's player an, yeah. right yeah it's like i said it's an album of its time it, it really their songs were long he had those long put together songs back then uh, it's kind of like what i was talking about last week Format was getting played with a little bit by some of these guys, like Billy Joel, by Elton John, by Meatloaf, and it. Um, regardless of all of that, it's a, just a fantastic song. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's, it's really one of, 
it's a highlight. It is. It and is. It, and it's yeah. perfectly placed. It is perfectly placed. One. And we're going to flip this album over. Mm-hmm. So we should anticipate a hit. Or at least Tony's favorite song on the album. When the truth is told that you can get what you want or you can just get old, you're going to kick off before you even get halfway through. Ooh, when will you realize Vienna waits for you? One of the best constructed songs on the album. It's his, I think it's his best vocal performance, too. His vocals Where, are I, fantastic on this I, song. I'm going to agree with you. This, remember I was telling you about the, that piano player I played with, is that Billy Joel makes no sense? Mm-hmm. He showed me the chord progressions on this song, and he was showing me how it made no sense. And I even went as far t- uh, this week to look up uh, what he does on this. It's bizarre. I mean, the things that he, they don't make sense, but it is so cool and it sounds so organic. It doesn't sound forced. It, None yeah. Of the stuff he's doing. The yeah. music is so emotive on this song and his voice is so soulful. It's just great. And, it, and, and there's this, nothing, uh, nothing too heavy dampening mm-mm. what's happening. Yeah. They, they, yeah. Keep, they keep everything at bay. And the accordion's yeah. great on it too. It's like perfect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's um, played by, uh, Flacco? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now we got to give that guy some credit. It's um, this Dominique Cortis. Cortise, I think is his name. He's played uh, with Dominique um, Cortis. I think did, he's, did he did he have a little monkey with him when he played it too? <laughs> my favorite Italian wrestler. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, I guess if your name's Dominique, you got to play accordion. Why? Uh, why Vienna? Well, funny you should ask, Doug. It was inspired by that story I mentioned earlier about him going to Europe and seeking out his dad. And so he hooks up with his dad who happened to live in Vienna. And uh, and so they're walking around. This what what gets it the song, what inspires the song is they're walking around and they see an elderly woman pushing a broom. And right. Billy Joel says, Is that that's so sad? Look at her. She's over there working at this age. And uh and and his dad goes, no, 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 no. She's she's feeling useful. She feels useful. She does not feel, you know, essentially making a comment about how Americans sort of toss their elderly away. Whereas in Vienna, they yeah. they gave them a point to exist. And so he he realizes that you don't have to, like this epiphany comes to him about not having to squeeze your entire existence into your 20s or your 30s, that you got a lot of life to live. And um, yeah. you shouldn't let the rat race kill you. And so Vienna, using that town where he hooked up with his dad and walked around and saw that as a metaphor for that, this state of mind of understanding that that um, you have a purpose, that there's a purpose. It's okay to grow old and not feel useless, you know? Yeah. When he went over to Vienna, he didn't realize that his dad had had created a whole new family. Yeah, he, he remarried he and he had, had, a, had a kid. Had a ha- yeah, and had a half-brother. And I think that half brother became a uh, pretty famous conductor. Yeah, he was. Over in, yeah. Well, he also said his dad was unbelievably happy. Like he, he like he hadn't seen him in twenty years. Mm. Um, which would be, be, so be that, that would be tough to go yeah, look your dad up if you hadn't God. seen him in twenty so years. For all of these years, I have thought that Vienna waits for you was about the sausage. 
No, they, <laughs> those are Vieners. They, uh, I, all these, I thought it was because Vienna was where you went to be discovered the master oh. appreciated huh. in classical music. Oh, okay. Like Mozart goes oh, wow. to be in. Oh, interesting. Goes. So I thought yeah. he was talking about his, if I get good enough, I'll go to Vienna and be at the top of the classical music. Huh. So I thought he was taking that. Um, I'm, I'm really surprised. <laughs> it's not that. Are you, does it change your feeling about the song at all? No. Um, it's a great, oh, I think the song it's a fantastic and, and I'm song. not sure he wasn't doing both. Um, well, no, and I think there's also, uh, he's also said that outside of all of that, it was a vehicle for him dealing with his dad in general, just yeah. writing the song. Um, but I, it would be weird if he was unaware of my interpretation also. I think you're, I think you're right. Because Vienna is yeah. the, it was the principal uh, place for all classical right. music at that time. Yeah, and that where Once um, you made Mozart's, it, you went there. That yeah, every, everybody... When you made yeah, it, you Mozart's went to Vienna. Piano that was the headquarters. If you could make it there, you can make it anywhere. You can make it anywhere. Yeah. I uh, so, so glad they they named it once. I <laughs> I just realized uh, it just popped into my head. I believe this was the TikTok song. Oh yeah, this oh, is that's that right. right. This is the song this that everyone has heard. That. Yeah. Well, you you want to know who covered it? Who covered Which it? Might explain. Uh oh, Ariana. You hear that, Ariana? Ariana Grande. Are those the fornicating toads? We got fornicating toads, ladies and gentlemen. They're back. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hear them. So, I'm sorry, Jam. Uh, Ariana Grande uh, covered this? Yes. This How, song was is covered it good? by Ariana Grande. Is it a good version? I don't know. I have no idea. I just know this. Ariana Grande covered it, and I think that's why the kids are into the song now. I wonder if she had any idea what she was singing. This about. song also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys probably know a lot more about his discography than I do, but this song sounds very Elton Johnny to me. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. just the it soulfulness like, of it and the way the way his phrasing sounds very much the way oh, Elton John sings. That? Sorry seems to be the ho- hardest word. Is, is back, it really comes to mind for me. It may have, it may have shared the same accordion player. It's such know. a good song. It is. It is fantastic. And song. you know what? The we, next song is a really good song. This is a song that a young Doug Cooper saw on Saturday Night Live, and yep, so one absolutely kind of had. To oh, have and and what song is that, Doug? Only the good die young. As the only papist on this podcast, I'm deeply, deeply offended by this song. But because he says that your women hold out better than others? I'm joking. I don't care about that. You know, he did get confirmed at 11 or something, even though he was Jewish. Really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then he turned Yeah, he was yes. Jewish. Yeah, but he. Uh, the only reason he was Catholic because his friends in high school or his friends in school were. So he He's just started going popular. to church. Yeah, it's just going to church with them. But so my question, I, my question, I want to ask you guys: Is he trying to change her first name without changing her last name? What do you mean? Her first name is Virginia. Uh huh. It sounds like he wants to change that name. Oh, I see what you're saying, Lord. I th- I think I'd... a young man of honor would change her last name before he would try to 
take away her uh, first name. I think he's trying to take away her first name. I do too. Yeah, I, I, and he I wants do. to get a little. He's trying to convince a nice young Catholic girl to get you a think little it's physical. An accident her that her name is Virginia. Uh, well, it's actually based on a. Uh, it's based on somebody who was actually named Virginia that he knew. Wow, um, Virginia Callahan, who was a girl he had a crush on when he was younger. Wow. And so, so yeah. anyway, that's what uh, he says it, at least. But I think. I think your interpretation makes a lot of sense too. Um, she does hold out. She the song ends with her being still being a, a, a chaste, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this was originally arranged as a reggae song. Yeah, um, I'm, it, I'm so glad they changed it. Well, <laughs> Devito <laughs> hated it so much he threw he threw his sticks at Billy Joel and said, "What are you doing? I hate reggae." So. Um, it was changed to be more upbeat because Paul Simon came into the studio and said, you know, the subject matter is kind of a little heavy. Really, a nice juxtaposition would make a song like a bouncy sort of poppy song, like a f- happy, fun song. You know, you're talking about taking this girl's virginity, but it, but the music is like just, you know, you could see see it being part of a bunch of guys and dancing in a Broadway musical or something. So. Yeah. And then Phil Ramone took that and said, okay, let's do a straight four, uh, do it in straight four and then have the drummer play a shuffle. And they thought that's going to sound like junk and it ended up sounding pretty good. Um, so that is essentially what happened. Um, DeVito said he based the drum riff on Mitch Mitchell's playing on Up From The Skies. <laughs> oh, really? The, the Jimi Hendrix song. Yeah. Yeah. And of course there's hand claps in it, which yeah. are always great. But um, <laughs> yeah. This it sounds like a Paul Simon song in a lot of ways. It does. It does. It sounds and, exactly. That's but it rocks harder than Paul Simon. It does rock harder than Paul Simon. And and then um, yeah. Billy Joel never got to this level again. That's no, yeah. That's you're interesting. Right. You're right. He you're never. So right. um, the the lyrics on this tune are flawless. Yeah. Everything is clever and concise and he's rocking and that saxophone mm-hmm. yeah. is yeah it pushes it over the edge this well when is, it's because it, it goes into that kind of um like fats domino mm-hmm. sort of uh-huh. uh, yeah, uh, 50s. Hill sort yeah. of yeah and like, then it, um, it comes out of it hard it, it this is flawless this is a great <clears throat> rock and roll this song. is this is the my favorite song the album well it's everybody's and, favorite song it, and well, Vienna is my just, favorite song on the album, but this is a this all is the normal people love this song the most. I, I didn't say I didn't love this song. Um, this, but I am a papist, so the I reason know, this reason, may be my favorite song he's ever you're done. Real sensitive. I mean, the reason I keep saying that is because uh, evidently this song wasn't going anywhere. It ended up reaching twenty number twenty four on the pop charts, but um, the the uh, it was banned by a Catholic radio station in at a Catholic university in New Jersey, and then the uh, diocese. Banded as well, and so it was this big kerfuffle with the Catholic Church up on the uh, around the New York, New Jersey area, and um and uh, the kids were like, "They're banning this! I got to go find out what this is about." And so people they started buying it. Next thing you know, they got a hit on their hands. In fact, so much so that Billy Joel said that he wrote a wrote a letter to the Archdiocese that banned it, asking them to asking them to ban their next record. Yeah, can you do that to my next single, please? That it's, is so funny that this stupid. album is. They're I know, saying it's that so f- they're saying yeah. that 
she's more chaste because she's Catholic. Mm-hmm. They should I'm, say, I'm just, see, yeah. young people? We're the I can't believe that Billy Joel's not Irish or Italian based on this album. Because it, there's, he, yeah, he touches on he touches on so many like uh, those Catholic themes and. Well, I think there's a commonality to um, that experience growing up in those neighborhoods. Um, yeah, that's, well, that's just, sort of uh, universal. Not unlike Bruce with his mixed background. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Fantastic. We song. don't we what don't understand great. any of this Yankee stuff. But uh, I agree with you, Doug. He never got. He, he never achieved this level of songwriting again. Well, he never achieved this level of rock and roll again. He did a lot of lot of other things, but this is the closest he came to a punch-in-the-face rock and roll tune. I think these three songs in a row, Vienna, Only the Good Die Young, and... Scenes um, from an Italian Restaurant? No. Oh. Well, she's always a woman. Represent real tight, intelligent songwriting on this album they did just come one two three boom 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 three mm-hmm. really well constructed songs one after another they're not that doesn't necessarily mean they're the best on the album but they're they're short tight and hard to criticize so what's the next song doug she's always a woman to me she steals like a thief but she's always a woman to me That's the most Billy Joe piano of all time. Mm-hmm. It is. Well, he he was trying to. He, he said he wanted this to be a folk song, and so he plays the piano like a guitar, like you would be finger picking a guitar, and it sounds mm-hmm. like you're finger picking a guitar. That's well, a arpeggio. This, like yeah, arpeggiated triads um, with his right hand. Yeah. He said it's in six eight time. I guess the song. Mm, what the heck it is, is, yeah, it is it? Is. Fast yeah, three it is. four. Um, and uh, of course this was uh written about his his first wife elizabeth the one who that asked for his, divorced yet. yeah who he asked who asked for royalties after his song this is another song that was considered misogynist by people who didn't understand the lyrics or what it was about well i've got some questions and mm-hmm. i would like all the ladies out there who like to write to me so much um he's calling her capricious selfish a liar and cruel maybe they're not completely off well yeah, I think, uh, and there's a point to where if you have to explain why a song says something, it's really not giving the message out. But his point was she was she was his manager. She had to work in this industry that where you had to be all those things, um, and but and people would call her those names because of that. He's not calling them that, but people would call her those names, and he would say, "Well, she she's none of those. She's just always a woman to me." So again, if he's, he's defending her, yes. despite. He, uh, I don't think, I don't think he makes that clear though. No, I hear you. What you're saying. Which I think it's a very well constructed song and a pretty song, but I've always been curious about what women think about it. Well, I'll tell you what my mom thought about it. And this is one of my issues with this album. So when this single came out, my mom bought it and she played it nonstop. And what I mean by nonstop is it would play and she would put the needle back on the beginning of it and play it again (laughs) over and over and over again. And she wasn't, not to get too personal, but she wasn't going through a great time in her life at that point. So this song has always been associated with a very sort of 
not, not a pleasant memory. And so it's difficult for me to step back and appreciate for the song for what it is. It's a beautiful song. My kids love this song because they don't have the history with it. But I have this history that just makes this, this drags me down. I can't listen to this song all the way through. I have to skip it. It's, I, it just has a, I just have such a visceral reaction listening to it, even trying to listen to it. Um, but I, I do recognize it for what it is. He said he was trying to write something like Gordon Lightfoot would write. <laughs> yeah, I read that. So, Which he, he got pretty close, I would say. Yeah, Number two, did I say this already? It was number two on the Delta contemporary, contemporary Charts and number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100. It was a huge hit for him. I have a very yeah. different history with this song. And uh, it's going to sound very trivial after what you just said. Oh, it's... But... This song always reminds me of one of Dave Vitamins. Exactly. <laughs> Why is that? Did they no, play it during the, the word. I don't know. No, but... you took the words out of my mouth. I take oh, care of myself. Oh, she takes care of herself. Oh. She I take exercises. Care of I eat right. <laughs> she eats right. She gets plenty of sleep, and she takes one a day, once a day. <laughs> In my mind... That, there Damn was it, a... that's exactly that's the thing I was going to say. There was a commercial on it at the yeah. same time. And yep. this just plugged into that. Yeah. Oh, it was always it was it was a man and a woman. And it was a dark We're walking, holding hands, and, and, and yeah. oh, she uh, takes care of herself. It's and he, he's bragging about his woman, and she and then she uh, gets well. I eat right, exercise, take care of myself, <laughs> and I take one a day vitamins. That's funny. <laughs> That's um, funny that you remember that, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> The last thing I'll say about the song, because it's not one of my favorite songs. I like the guitar playing quite a bit. I don't like his vocals. I don't think there's any guitar on it, is there? Oh, there's acoustic guitar. Yeah, there is. That's there's right. acoustic guitar on it. Yeah. I don't I, I don't think it's his best vocal performance. I think it's... He does sound a little thin on the high notes. I, yeah. I, I think, though, Doug's right. It's If I didn't have the hang-up on it, this is a, it's a nice little tight tune. Yeah, it's well-constructed. Yeah. Just oh like, yeah, the lyrics are like it. Yeah, the three, exactly. the two above it are are the same way. Yeah, I mean it, it it's shows, well constructed. It yeah. shows a craftsman, a great craftsman of songs. Now I don't think he's got quite the talent that like Paul Simon has or Paul. You know, he's more hit or miss. Paul yeah, he he. he I well, don't I mean, think that he he never gets to the same depth. Mm-hmm. He right. never gets to. Right. Uh, he, Boxer or mm-hmm. bridge over troubled water. He, right. Although he can't get that. Although far. you say that, and this album is Columbia's top-selling album ever, beating out Bridge Over Troubled Water. Bridge over well, troubled water I, I don't doubt that, but I'm I'm not I'm not going to uh, concede that he got to that same level of meaning, yeah. or or right. that same level of songwriting. He's not Paul right. Simon. He no, can't he's not. Compete with Paul Simon. Nope, I agree. Right. Yeah. Um. Up next, get your leisure suits out. Get it right <laughs> the first time. This song has a purpose, and it's a and he admits this. It's a something we talk about all the time. It's just weird placement. It's a palate cleaner. Yeah, it's a breath. 
is like we I wanted to do something that was that was um you know just a little bit of a breath purposeful because of the heaviness of some of the stuff we just went through um but it's weird that it's the breath is the second to the last song on the album <laughs> I yeah I want I want to leave the holiday in loud <laughs> it's not a good song it's it's, it's, it's not it it could it could be better but it is such a cheesy production. Well, it's a hard song, evidently. This is the hardest song and the most complicated song, according to Oliver uh, DeVito. I don't, to think, play. I don't have any I, idea what the time signature is, but it sounds brutal. It, it, he said they diff. It, it, this is his little play on words. He said, We definitely didn't get it right the first time. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, see, okay, I'm going to. I remember listening to this as a kid on the eight track. We had the eight track. And like trying to like do anything I could to fast forward through this song, and on an eight track, you were you were working hard. <laughs> well, yeah, there was some that had. I think our house had one that had a fast forward button on it. You couldn't do it in the car, but you could do it in the. Uh, but anyway, what are you talking um, about, Jay? I, I don't feel like that's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I did. I did not like this song as a kid. And it, and you know, it, it's hard to separate memories from the song, right? Tony, you were just talking about that. Because um, I just remember, going, oh, I don't want to, last thing in the world I want to hear is this song. But listening to it again, you're right, Tony. It, it is really complicated. The the drum parts are really complicated. The the um, the guitar parts doing that, I don't know, like when they're coming in, that's really kind of strange. So it's it's a sophisticated song, you know. Just because it's sophisticated doesn't make it good, and or but less is, cheesy. Yeah, and it's, it is cheesy. It was that flute coming in, going. Well, and, and, and I, even the subject matter is not even all that yeah. interesting. Picking up chicks. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. It's nah, not good. Yeah. All right, but. Thankfully, the album doesn't end on that song. That's very good thing. I'm so glad it doesn't end on that song. Everybody has a dream. They do. If I were in charge of the world, mm -hmm. Aretha Franklin would have been forced to sing this song. I agree with you. I said exactly what Coop were on a very similar. Are you getting way. on like, my was, wavelength now, now, baby? I was thinking Aretha Franklin, Sissy Houston, uh, Aretha Franklin's sisters, or even the Staples. Those, those are so much. Those are yeah, so much better than what Billy Joel said they were going for, which was Joe Cocker. Oh, huh. no, no. I, I would I would ask Joe Cocker if he even understood the song, if he was singing it. <laughs> um, well, this is the one that has Richard T. playing Hammond organ. Yeah, and Phoebe, Phoebe organ Snow is, sings backup on it. But the, the keyboard parts are amazing. I mean, it, it's a great song. He, he kind of... He opinion, steps outside of himself on this one. Yeah, yeah. he really does. And he, I don't think he's ever done anything like this 
Yeah, and it's a and it's a very nice sentiment too. You know, it's a it's a great way to end this end the album, and um, it's a very good way to end the album. Absolutely, good vocal performance. A little bit of uh, yeah. that one bit we heard, I, I, and I was gonna. We've talked since then, so I've forgotten what it was. But there's one point where he does that again, not to throw Elton John out, but he does that that kind of Elton John thing that Elton John does, where he, oh, yeah. know, he kind of yeah. does that deep kind of weird growl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does that a couple of times. Does Billy Joel ever put out an album this good again? No. Even it's- when I was a kid, it. At 13, I recognize he had not put out an album. Like, it, um, 52nd Street, yeah, that's, Honesty. That's as it. far as I got was I, I uh, followed him to 52nd Street, and then I dropped off after that. I, I like, yeah. uh, what's the album with uh, Allentown on it and Pressure? I like that album. But I was also 12, year, about, I was 12 years yeah. old when that album came out. Well, you know, yeah, Doug Doug's asking about this. Uh, did he ever do an album? This was... His first top 10 album, it was one of the top selling albums of the year. It peaked at number two and spent six weeks at number two in the Billboard Top 100. It was number one all that time. I don't know. It's his best selling non-compilation album of today. And as I said, it passed Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Waters to become Columbia's best selling album. It sold 10 million units worldwide. Yeah. I think he sold 150 million total. Of this album? No, no. Oh, of all albums. Wow, I think his uh, which puts best, him at the close to the top. And uh, and we I talked think his about his best selling album is his uh, greatest hit. Yeah, it, it is the the best selling double album in in history. I'm not sure. I don't know if that's right, but at least in Columbia's history, is that Eagles Live album a double album? Because I think didn't that when that. I don't uh, know. That may or, have been. I can't remember. Or Eagles Greatest Hits or whatever. I don't know. Great anyway. Eagles Greatest Hits is a single album. That's right. Eagles Live, which changed my life. <laughs> is <laughs> um, you know, he he toured he opened for the Eagles. That would have been a weird weird thing. And the Beach Boys too. Beach um, Boys makes more sense. Than especially the Eagles, with but, his retro rock and roll yeah. later with the it's still rock and roll to me and all that. What was yeah. that? Fifty was that the glass houses where he did That's, all that? Yeah, glass houses. Oh, God, what a yeah. That's when he just really sad. This is where when that book that I was talking about, when he says he's one of the worst rock and rollers, or in the top two worst rock and rollers. Yeah, he that went on album. That. that album epitomizes exactly what he can't do. Um, it, it's just not it's. Even if it's old junk, still rock it's, and roll. It's like Phil it's Collins. So it's like Phil Collins singing. Uh, what was that song he covered? Um, I, you can't. Be yeah, you can't. You can't. Um, hurry, you love. Just yeah. Can't hurry yeah. love. by the Supremes. Yeah, yeah. That, it's like Phil Collins doing that. It just wasn't. A, it didn't. Fit. No, it's not necessary. It yeah. But it right. makes tons of money. Yeah, it and does. I would have done yeah. it in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, Rolling Stone does this thing. So, this 500 top albums. Initially, this was number 67. They've reassessed things. And I believe, I think I've got these numbers right. It's now 169. What happened? Uh, Rolling Stone, who knows? Well, he's white. Oh. And uh, all the crap that came out later diminished this album. Oh, I see. Okay. That's that's my opinion. Grunge and rap. Well, no, I, I just think... Um, if, you, if if you were to listen to Piano Man, you say this guy's a serious dude, and every album from that 
I think he becomes less serious heavyweight or yeah. less I'm so deep and moved yeah. and you know you know how people judge music incorrectly. Uh if if you write a song about being happy, oh you're a lightweight. Mm -hmm. But uh Right. Writing songs about being happy are the hardest songs of all to write. Anybody mm -hmm. can I agree with you. Song. But so I think part of the damage done to Billy Joel, part of the reason he's considered a lightweight or um un unserious is because of what came later with with his very pop songs that are very very popular. Don't forget your yeah, don't forget your second wind and <clears throat> Um, I don't know what what other or that what's that terrible song where all he does is just cite history. Oh was, yeah, who's going to start the fire? And that yeah, is, what a that's yeah, an awful, what a, that's a horrible song. Just a horrible song, and mm. you know, and well, uh, in addition to that, it's unrecognizable. I I played that song for a class while I was teaching, and they could recognize none of the events mentioned in the song, and I thought. <laughs> What am I doing here? I'm wasting my time. Yeah. This was this Man. was his um I hate to say it, but this was his plane crash album. I, uh, I agree with you. And what I mean by that, ladies and gentlemen, this is a horrible thing that I invented, but it's the album if the artist would have died immediately after putting this album out, it would have caused people to think that they were a genius and that we've been deprived of so much. And I think that his reputation would have been higher had he put nothing out after this, and everybody could sit around and wonder what great things were yeah. to come later. And yeah. some of the albums after this have good songs on them, but nothing, nothing, nothing is, this consistent. Yeah, and there's this, no album this good after this. And I think everything after this becomes self-conscious, and that's always a kiss to death yeah. to me. And it also becomes. Uh, financially conscious well what yeah i mean imagine this guy had been sort of clawing trying to make ends meet plus he's got this horrible deal that he's still got climbing on or uh, right attached to where the guy's getting yeah. a percentage of his songs but he's got success all of a sudden yeah um right. i think the drummer talks about them being at a show after this album was released and um at, at backstage all these girls come running up and billy joel's sort of a short guy and he can't see him over this horde of girls surrounding him you know and he's like oh my lord this is something we've never experienced before um you know it's got to be that's got to be something that just kind of well i can tell you what doug cooper would do what's that put out the hits yeah <laughs> yeah and then you marry supermodels and stuff yeah. like that which he did yeah well, he um, and he started wearing sunglasses and looking cool and everything. But the the you know he has not put out an album straight pop. I think he did one classical album after 1993, but he has not put out an album since 1993 that was made for the pop charts. And I yeah. don't think he's recorded in more than 30 years. Well, and Elton John, you know, he and Elton John used to tour a lot together. And Elton John publicly said in a in an interview in this sort of started a little bit of riff of him that he felt like Billy Joel was resting on his laurels and that he creatively he was, he wasn't doing anything. He was, I don't think he used the term bankrupt, well, but, but he was like, well, the guy's not p putting out any new music. It hasn't for a well, long time. Yeah. And Elton so John I, I, should follow his example. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah. So he, that's Billy Joel is a very self-aware person. And it, it, that interview that I've listened to on, on that Rolling Stone podcast because who who really wants to hear 
me write new material. They know my songs. They want to hear those. They don't want yeah. to hear me do anything new. Well, and he's since retired, right? He's not performing anymore, I don't think. I think he did. Yeah. Yeah, if, I think he did one last If he's not spending all his time fishing, I don't understand. When you get that kind of money, <laughs> just fish. Are they yeah. fishing in uh, Long Island? I guess they yeah, do. They got, they got, yeah, they got nothing on the fish. They got the sound. I don't know if there's fish in the sound, but... You get on a big, expensive boat and go wherever the fish are. Okay. You're Billy Joel. <laughs> Well, well, fellas, that brings us to another end at, at two hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a short one. I did too. Well, I'm going to go ahead and try to get some reviews here. I'm going to start with uh, T, because T, you did not pick this album. No, I'm going to start with my critical rating first. Um it's a four or five. I think that this, as you, everything you've mentioned, I'm not going to repeat it other than to say that you're right. That this sort of him's hitting on cylinders that he didn't hit on again after this. Personally, I'm going to give it a four. And just because it's hard for me to shake some, some personal issues I have with some of the songs, but also there's just some songs on this album. I just don't like that much. There's songs on this album. I love, um, but there are other songs where I don't mind, hitting the skip button so yeah a four four is not bad but we get a four i'm going to give this a very boring review um as i said this is a puff the magic dragon album for me this is an album i listened to incessantly as a young man and i put away because i thought it was too good for it uh i was wrong this is a this is a work of intelligence this is a work of good songwriting and it's a, a good production. And I'm going to give it a critic review of four or five. And I'm going to give it a, a personal review of four or five. A double four or five. That's right. Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Okay. I'm going to go with my uh, critics rating first. Um, I'm going to give it a four eight. Uh, and it's kind of difficult for me to figure out why it's not a five as a critic, I'm going to give it a four and eight. And it's, it's difficult to, to explain exactly why it's not a five other than I just don't think that the, the lyrics themselves or the, the, the lyrics are just all that brilliant. They just don't take me to a place like a Van Morrison song does or a Tom Waits song does. Um, my personal rating is going to be a four or five. Um, I can't give it a five because the songs, like I was kind of talking about, they just don't have the emotional resonance with me that other kind of singer songwriters have, like like Paul Simon, like, um, again, I keep going back, Tom Waits. Um, there's just something that is a little bit lacking in that way, but the, the but it's, the playing is so good on this album that the songs themselves are so, so good on it that um, I, I, just, I really like it. Um, and the last thing I want to say about it is it, it's kind of, like I've said before, it's, it's a, it's an album of its time. It, it does kind of encapsulate what was going on in 1977 with, in a lot of ways. I mean, rumors had just come out. You know, I think this, the album gained traction in 1978, but there were there was just so many songs at this time that were 
uh, you know, just look at the, the 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 songs that were hits in 1978. It was it was either disco or it was these syrupy ballads like "Bluer Than Blue," or um, songs by Ann Murray and or this. You're gonna get album. our Canadian listeners angry. <laughs> but this song, the, the, the songs on this album, just kind of set it apart. It, it's just they're just much much better than any of the the stuff that was coming out at that time. So uh, that's another reason why I think it's such a, uh, an anomaly from this, from this time period. Anyway. Um, yeah. My personal range four or five. Well, thank you, JM. And uh, we appreciate you bringing this uh, album. Uh, this is a highly overlooked album. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows about it. No one's heard the songs. On it's it. nice to do a deep who, Billy who? <laughs> We're going to get that good one guy who doesn't like when we do albums like this. He's going to email us and go, come on, guys. <laughs> like, we need you to tell us about this record. Oh, so seriously. Anyway, we're Stoner Steve. Um, T? I don't have anything, Doug. <laughs> I've got a recommendation for everybody tonight, and I would like to, remit, to recommend that uh, everyone listen to Billy Joel's first album. Oh, that's a good recommendation. The remastered version where he doesn't sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah. It's I don't understand. It reminds me of Bruce Springsteen's first album because uh, for a long time, critics were given that album three stars, and that makes zero yeah. sense. It's brilliant songwriting and great songs. Uh, the same is true with his first Billy Joel album, uh, Cold. Cold Spring Harbor. Cold Spring Harbor. 69? Is that when that came out? 71? I think that's right. That's Se- 71. 71. 71. <laughs> which is when all the albums I like come out. <laughs> but I, I I would recommend that. Um, I, I listened to it a lot in preparation for this podcast when I'm supposed to be listening to another album. Well, and if I can piggyback on it, check out Attila if you can. <laughs> Just once, sit through it. Yeah. All right. Thank you all very much. And uh, we're going to turn it over to Jonathan J.M. Rowe now. Well, thanks for letting us into your airwaves with another episode of This is Vinyl Tap, the podcast that always goes to 11. If you know anyone who likes the long player format, please let them know about this podcast. And we're available on all podcasting platforms. And while you're up there on those podcasting platforms, please leave us a review. Give us some stars. We're always looking for some feedback and some recommendations. You can also visit us on our Facebook group page if you're so inclined. And if you're old school, like the three of us, you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. But of course, for the ultimate, this is Vinyl Tap Experience. Please visit our website. If you go up there, you're going to find all sorts of links to um, interesting things. And you can leave us reviews. You can uh, contact us with albums you would like for us to review in future podcasts. And you can get links to all of our past episodes. Next week, we're going to be looking at an album by a band out of Chicago. Their 1978 album, Heaven Tonight by Cheap Trick. Our host, Doug Cooper, 
our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan JMRL. Just know, we like you just the way you are. <laughs>